What's up, people? Hotep Jesus. We back with another. I almost said the name of the old show, which was another uncomfortable conversation. But anybody that's not familiar, it's no longer called Uncomfortable Conversations because, man, a million people had that name already. We have since renamed this Sharp Conversations with Hotep Jesus. Before we get into our illustrious guest today, gotta pay the bills. I am a three to four time tech startup co-founder. We got Wazo AI had a meeting with the team the other day. We went over some uh, UI, UX uh, things, I guess you can say, and it looks good, man. It's gonna be it's gonna be a very marvelous looking project. Uh, I know it feels big brotherish. I know some people express that concern and. You know what? We are kind of big brotherish. It, it, there are monitoring factors involved with our AI. The difference is our stuff isn't hosted on the cloud. It's hosted right on the edge. So you get to own your data. Shout out to Olivia Rodriguez. She said at 6.33 a.m. in India. Appreciate you coming through. Shout out to my mods, Ken, Steph. Appreciate you for holding me down tonight. Also, Coinbits app. Been a big week. I think Bitcoin hit 14K. If I'm not mistaken, this week, if not within the past 24 hours, I know the users on our app are on our app are ec- ecstatic. Coinbits app only a dollar per transaction, whether you buy or sell, either way, doesn't matter. And the limits, our limits got raised. We switched banking partners. Guaguan, Guaguan RL. So, uh, yeah, great things are happening over there with that app. Uh, you can set it and forget it. Dollar cost average your investment in Bitcoin, and it's the best way to do it. 3 a.m. in South Africa. Shout out to South Africa. I see y'all. Love my African people. My brother's over there. Uh, is it all AI? I wouldn't consider the Coinbits app AI. It's very much uh, not AI. <laughs> you know, um, you, you, you set it uh, to the amount that you want to invest. and. Uh, It'll invest that for you weekly. And Jivitize. Jivitize is great for content creators. Allows you to rip GIFs and videos from Twitter. Save them directly to your iPhone. Android version is in the works. We spoke to the dev last week. Give us some time. Hopefully we'll have something ready for you by uh, first quarter uh, 2021. But without further ado, I'm going to get ready to introduce my guest here. When I was a young tadpole, when I was a young hotep padawan, I was thirsty for knowledge. Thirsty, man. I would check the YouTubes, man. And if I heard somebody speak and mention one guy's name, I was devouring those videos and I was going on to whoever they mentioned. And that guy mentioned somebody, I was going to devour those YouTube videos. If they would mention a book, I was going to buy the book. And I ran across his brother by the name of Booker T. Coleman, now known as uh, Kaba Hiawatha Kamene. And the first time I ran into him, he was... uh. It's, it's a small event. And there was another brother there who was cussing a lot and had that real, you know, uh, warlike energy. And uh, Kaba is very laid back, soft-spoken individual. But they balanced each other out because I enjoyed both of their energies. I enjoyed that one guy's energy who was cussing and bringing the energy. And then I enjoyed Kaba understanding uh, that man's role as well as Kaba's role. And I started 
watching his videos and then I got into the Dogon tribe video and that video was about three, four, five hours. I don't remember what it was, but I think I watched it maybe at least twice. And I was like, yo, this the dude right here, man. This the dude right here. Now I hit Rogan. Um, I mentioned him. And he reached out, said thank you. I meet a lot of celebrities. But when Kaba reached out, I was like, oh my dude, my OG teacher. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you one of the OGs in the so-called Hotep community, Kaba Hiawatha Kamene. What's up, brother? How are you? My brother, Hotep, to my Hotep Jesus. <laughs> Do you know how that makes me feel, man, when I hear oh. your voice embrace me and embrace me as Hotep Jesus? Oh, man, it's such an honor, man. It's such an honor. I appreciate you, brother, and, I, and, and I'm honored that you're honored, brother. And one thing that you said that's so important is balance mm. and ma'at. Yes. And during these times that we're living in now is a perfect example of how we can begin to practice balance. Ma'at. She is balance and harmony and righteousness and justice. You know, she represents... The concept that Dr. King often said, but I've heard it said many times, but I, I quote Dr. King when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm. Mm. And another, another principle of ma'at along with justice and righteousness is reciprocity. Mm -hmm. Shall reap what you sow. Will go around, come around. And this is what we're experiencing. And in both ways, be it positive vibration or negative vibration, nature and the cosmos will, will return it. What you give out, you will get back sevenfold. Mm. You give out negative energy, you get it back sevenfold. Mm. You give out positive energy, you get it back sevenfold. Mm. And so we're living in phenomenal times to my brother Hotep. Mm. Yes, phenomenal times. And I realize that these are not the very best of times for some of us. My heart, my prayers, my invocations goes to all who have suffered during this time. Be you personally in, uh, affected by these times, or if you've had a loved one that has been impacted. I feel for you, and I respect and honor your experiences. But things are going to get But That's the one thing, Hotep Jesus, I always told my children. Mm -hmm. Be they my own biological children or the children I had in my classroom when I taught in South Central Bronx. I said, no matter what you see happening, things will get better. Mm. Know that. When I used to do, you know, programs or counseling people who are considering suicide, you only, the only time you really consider suicide is when you believe all things are hopeless. Mm. Things will never get better. And I often ask people who are on that edge, what happens tomorrow? If you should join the ancestors tonight, but what you didn't know is your greatest dreams were about to become fulfilled tomorrow. Had you just waited one more day, everything would be right for you. Mm -hmm. These are the times our people are going through, and all people, but I'm talking about our people right now. I'm speaking about peoples of African descent. Okay. It's rough, man. Yeah. 
it's very rough, rough on so many different levels that we face. And we just got to hold strong and know that this too shall pass. Mm, indeed. Indeed. Do y'all see this energy, man? This, this is that, that, that grand council elder energy that, man, that just sometimes you just need, you need it all the time. Mm. Shout out to Kenta Rowe, 199 Super Chat. He said, excited for another sharp conversation. Wasted Talent Podcast. What up, Jay? 199 Super Chat. Halim is in the building. What's up, homegirl? Def Jules, what up? Def Jules said, this is Graceness. Yes, you, you familiar with Baba. Now, we spoke earlier on the phone and um, something you said to me, which was a realization I had, I want to say uh, several years before Donald Trump got elected. And you said tonight, we can talk about culture, but you wanted to talk about what we're building, right? Can, can you expound on that point or reiterate that point that you expressed to me about that importance? You know, brother, you know, folk that know me know I'm deep inside culture, deep inside African culture. I, I swim in it, I eat in it, I dream in it, <laughs> I run in it. <laughs> but we have to take another look towards where we're headed in the future. And, you know, we can have all the culture we want, but there's another phenomenon that's going, it's not the strongest that survive and it's not the survival of the fittest mm. that continue. It's the one that can adapt to new ways. Whenever you see in the human family, the, the progression from bacteria to plant, to fish, to amphibian, to reptile, to mammal, and then the different levels of mammal, what you see happening is that it is not the strongest that survived because quite frankly, the ancestor that many people believe of the mammal was an, an organism known as hadrocodium. And hadrocodium during the time of Tyrannosaurus rex and Stegosaurus towards the end of the, 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 the lifespan of the dinosaur, yeah. the terrible lizard, hadrocodium was only as big as the top part of the, your, your pinky top digit of your pinky. That's as big as it was. Hmm. And out of that came us. But the fact is, is that what brought us to this point right here, where we are right now sitting, Hotep Jesus, Kaba Hiawatha, and all the audience that is listening, and those that are not. What brought us to this point were the ancestors that were able to, through trial and tribulation, keep on keeping on. The future wealth of our planet is solar power. Hmm. The means to get there is going to be what we call artificial intelligence. But behind artificial intelligence that makes artificial intelligence not only exist, but to be able to move forward is spiritual intelligence. Hmm. We have to know that balance. Artificial intelligence isn't the future but it certainly is part of the future. And so we have to understand as a people where we have to go with all of this conversation that we're having. And this is why when you're looking at solar power, I go back into our cultural understandings and I find that our ancestors 
understood the power of solar power. In fact, they understood solar power to the point where they call themselves children of the sun. So this is how deep it gets mm -hmm. as to where we're moving and the things that we have to do. Culture, most definitely. Culture is to human as water is to the fish. Mm. But it's important to understand even fish live a certain life in the water. Mm. So while it, a water is very important, the reason why water is important is because that is what allows that organism to exist within it. Right. And that is solar power. Mm. 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 Quick question. You mentioned this organism about the size of the top section of the pinky. Yes, hydroconium. Hydroconium. That to me sounds like, I guess, evolution theory above creationism. Am I correct there, or is there a third way that I'm missing? Well, there. Well, the third way you could look at it is the way I tend to look at it. They both existed. That which was created went through a life history. See, what's interesting, brother, is when I go to churches and to speak to brothers and sisters who are of, let's say, the Christian faith system, mm -hmm. I don't use the word evolution. Okay. I use the term life's history. Mm. And nobody has a problem with that. But if I say evolution, mm. people have concepts that have been stamped in their head as to what evolution is. Okay, right, absolutely. And they get the impression that we descended from apes, and that's not true. Apes and humans have a common ancestor. Some people call it Ramapithecus. We have a common ancestor. Mm. Bone for bone, muscle for muscle. Apes and humans are exactly alike. Mm. The only real difference is when you get inside of the brainstem and you get into the 12 pigmented sections, there, there, there is a, a section in the brain known as the locus Corelius. It's a Sanskrit Greek word, which means black dot. Dr. Richard King, the melanist, talks a lot about this. The locus Corelius in humans has been refined and defined in order to be able to absorb more melanin to be able to activate melanin more in the locus Corelius than in the locus Corelius of an ape. Hmm. But there's no difference between us and apes. Hmm. Muscle for muscle, bone for bone, hands, feet. One marked difference is the opposable big toe. Okay. But at one time, our ancestors had an opposable big toe also. Hmm which when we got down on the ground and started walking on the grasslands, it, it got in our way because we kept stepping on it. So we kept pushing it, you know, to the side. And, and nature is a beautiful thing because it wants you to exist with the least resistance. And so pretty soon the descendants of the descendants of the descendants of the hominid, which is who we came out of, and the pungid, which remained up in the trees, which is where the apes and and the monkeys and the, well, the great apes still live, uh, live um, that the hominids began to give birth to children whose big toe was no longer opposable. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it was just like our big toe, eventually. Mm. And there are still some human beings that have an opposable big toe, not many, 
but there's still some that haven't. Wow. And they have to wear orthopedic shoes, by the way. Okay. This is science, brother. So, so, so it sounds like uh, the organism is adapting to the environment and, you know, I hate to use the word evolving. Uh, I think it's more or less just adapting to the environment and improving on its previous version. Absolutely. Well, evolve is a is a good word. It's just that it has been given a connotation and a denotation. Right. That because of the uh, Judeo-Christic ethic from the Abrahamic religions, it has created a negative aspect towards evolution. Right. But the word is fine. Okay. It just means to evolve, mm-hmm. which is fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes. Nature has it so that nature wants us to be successful. Okay. The creator, however you may view that concept, wants us to be successful. We are their children, and nature loves us. Indeed. And nature brought us in order to live the type, and that is why she, he, has supplied us with the foods that we eat. Before humans were even on the planet, Dr. Sebi and Sister Ma'at, his wife, teach us that the food was already on the planet. Mm. I mean, we walked in buffet on table. (laughs) (laughs) Not not needing or wanting. Not needing or wanting. Everything was there. Mm. Before we came, nature set the table for us. Mm. And continues to do so and continues to love us and honor us and respect us like all parents, as I feel towards my children, only the best for them. And I will do whatever I have to, to make their lives better. And I mean better. I brought my children up to understand. I ain't brought you in here for you to be like me. (laughs) I brought you in to be better than me. Indeed. That's your purpose. Be better than me, not be like me. I respect your respect, but better. You you have to take me up to the next level. You know, it's like in music when you sing do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Yeah. Well, you started with do, you ended with do, but the second do is on a higher octave. Ah, uh, D, D. Same do, different octave. Mm. That's our children. Uh. Same person, different octave. Mm. Mm. Powerful. Let's talk solar. I want to, before we get into uh, the gentleman that you're going to bring up in his work on on solar power, let's start with uh, the reason why you got interested and why you think it's important to discuss this solar energy and and its ties to ancient Kemet. Okay. First and foremost, Brother Hotep Jesus, the first thing I came to realize the importance of solar power was the absolute failure of the Western civilization education system. They ain't preparing nobody for the future. Uh, They're a business. They're an edu business. Oh, say that again. It's an edu business. Western education is not interested in the advancement of the human family. When you look at the way in which the educational system is, okay, let me give you an example that I think is phenomenal because I was working with my grandson the other day. He's eight in the fourth grade. Mm. And I was, uh, he was showing me tests because he's on virtual learning. Right. 
that that's a whole nother thing now. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, you know, I could do a whole nother piece cause that brother's teaching me things mm. about virtual learning. Mm-hmm. And my goodness, if I were ever a teacher in this system today, hey, I, I give praise to the teachers for having to adapt. We talk about it's the ones that adapt to the new way. Much respect to the teachers yeah. that have had to adapt to virtual learning, not to mention those teachers who may not be computer proficient. Mm-hmm. What they have to learn in order to continue this process. But the point I'm making is that in, in the African tradition, from what I've studied, when you, when you went to school, the, the purpose of education, the idea of testing, they didn't really care about what you got right. They cared about what you did not get right. So there was no such thing as failing. Hmm. It was searching. Because, okay, 10 questions, you get eight right. Well, the, the most important thing about that test is not that you got 80. It's that there's two things you didn't know. So the idea was to study those two things. Mm. So that the next time you took a test, you got 10 out of 10. Mm. Mm. And that's the way the thought process. It's not about failing. It's about searching. Mm. Searching to make connections. Mm. It was very positive. It, it was something that was a, a, a dynamic relationship, a symbiotic relationship between the learner and the teacher. It was symbiotic. It wasn't antagonistic. Mm. Mm. And so when, when we look at education, Western education does not prepare the children for the future. I had a student in my class when I also taught college, SUNY New Pulse. Okay. Upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And I had a student that was phenomenal. She did all of her assignments. She was in class on time, attentive, respectful, always on cue, always on her square. She did phenomenal in college. She graduated from college. She called me from her job. She was a secretary in a veterinarian hospital. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a secretary in a veterinarian hospital. That's an admirable occupation. But when you spend thousands of dollars and four years studying something, you should have a job in that field. Yeah. Not just for your sake, but for society's sake. Mm. Because we need that genius in that area to make us a better society. Right. And for those that would be great secretaries in veterinarian hospital, you done took a job from them. (laughs) (laughs) There's something wrong with that hotel, Jesus. Uh, mm, We're all heading towards energy. And I'll I'll talk about the concept of energy as, as, as we move through this process. That is what makes the cosmic universe exist. It's what makes this earth exist. Energy. Everything is energy. What brought the cosmos into existence from the universe was energy. Pata. He converted potential energy, energy at rest, into energy in motion. 
So energy is at the source of all things that are in the process of becoming, which is what a society should be doing. Okay. And what we're experiencing now is, like my students used to always say to me, this is college, uh, please tell me what I have to do to pass. <laughs> it's that study. <laughs> it's simple. Listen to what I say, because I used to drop it on them real clear. I used to tell them what I wanted. We, you know, first thing that was important in, in class, uh, this is how I judged them, because you see, I, I, I had a class one day, I taught a class uh, for 11 years on Malcolm X. I had a class on Malcolm. Okay. And one of the assignments was to look at the five, um, uh, the five inspirations of Malcolm, which were men, but Malcolm X was shaped by women. Mm. And that's a whole piece of Malcolm we don't study. Okay. The first person that impacted Malcolm, of course, was his mother. Right. Who carried him for 10 months before the world even knew he existed. Mm -hmm. The second was his sister, Ella, who he lived with in Boston. The third was someone that very few people talk about, but is probably one of the most important human beings, not to mention the important black woman, woman in general. And that's Sister Clara Muhammad, mm -hmm. the wife of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Okay. There's an untold story of how he, she guided Malcolm as another mother in his life. Sister Clara Muhammad is the mother of homeschoolers. Mm. When the police came to get her children out, she said, I'll be dead as a doornail if I let you in my house and take my babies from me. The fourth woman that shaped Malcolm was his wife, Dr. Betty Shabazz. Right. And then the last was not one, but six, four that he knew, two that he did not know, and those were his daughters. Okay. Malcolm was shaped by women, but inspired by men. Mm. The balance, mm -hmm. inspiration and shape. And it is only natural that you be inspired by the male energy and shaped by the female energy. Mm. It's a good thing. It is. The balance is there. But I gave the class an assignment because I talked about the, the males and the first one that we have to understand who had, who inspired Malcolm, maybe not directly, but indirectly, was Booker T. Washington. Okay. Booker T. Washington inspired somebody that would inspire Malcolm and Malcolm's teacher. And that is the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. Mm. Was inspired by Booker T. Washington. He wanted to come to Tuskegee and study with Booker T. Washington to return to the island of Jamaica to create a type of Tuskegee Institute for black people in Jamaica. Okay. When he got here, um, Booker T. Washington had just died. So he stayed in the States, traveled around, and eventually he would start the Universal Negro Improvement Association and what we know today as the Marcus Garvey movement. Right, UNIA, yeah. The UNIA. Now, he would inspire the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. But the thing is, is that Marcus Garvey was inspired by somebody that Elijah Muhammad literally sat at his feet. Folk may not want to admit this, 
but this is science. This is history. And 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 what you say this was, Hotep Jesus, sharp talk, sharp conversations. Yeah. Okay, then let's have a sharp conversation. Let's do it. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad was brought into the nation of Islam by the most honorable noble Drew Ali. Right. Circle seven Quran, Moorish exactly. Science Temple. Yeah. That is it. That is that that is what. And what was interesting is that it was his wife, Honorable Muhammad, his wife Clara, that used to go to meetings of Noble Drew Ali and invited her husband, Elijah Poole, to come to meetings with her. Okay. And so you have this Booker T. Washington, Marcus Garvey, Honorable Noble Drew Ali, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, and then you have John Henry Clark and Dr. Yosef Ben Yikinen, mm -hmm. who were his history teachers. Okay. Okay. Now, yeah. I gave an assignment to the students for them to be able to um, tell me a little bit about them. What organizations did they form? What impact did they have on Malcolm? Thing like that. Okay, we, you know, we got the students coming. They didn't prepare their job. They didn't prepare their work. But what I noticed is they got on their phones. And they had as much to say about all those people as the ones that actually did their job. <laughs> So what did that tell me? That told me that you have to change the way you teach these students. Uh. So there were three things that I demanded of my students in college. Number one, perfect attendance. Okay. I taught in the evening, 15 classes, because when you, when you taught two classes a week, it was cut in half. Okay. But New Paul's is 82 miles north of where I was. So one no way homie going up there twice a week with that gas and all the rest of that stuff. So I taught evening classes, 15 of them per term. Okay. So if you miss one class of mine, it's like missing two classes if I taught 30. Mm. You miss one, one of my class, your, your grade potential automatically is at a B. Because mm. I wanted you in that class. And I used to tell them, look, all you got to do is cross campus. I got to travel 82 miles up here. If I can do this, you certainly can walk across campus. Right. So the first was perfect attendance. Okay. The second was I gave three tests or quizzes, whatever you want to call them. Okay. 25 questions. Now, see, here's in my mind, I'm talking to a new generation of students. I'm not talking to my generation. And so what I do is this, whenever I would teach something that I knew was going to be on one of the tests, I would tell them, this question is going to be on your test. That's when everybody's pen come out because they go, <laughs> <laughs> right. they just daydreaming up until now, but no, they're going to take that. Okay, this is going to be on the test. Yeah. The week before the test, I would go over all 25 questions mm. and I would have their answer. But you see, psychologically, this is an African tradition. What I'm doing is I'm building on your neuronal pathways in your brain okay the first thing is heads up this is a question okay because the only questions i asked were things that i wanted you to actually know because the way the education system is set up hotep jesus right now it's a game yeah it's a game because when you study for a test particularly in college you're not studying the material 
you're studying your professor. You're studying your teacher, trying to figure out what's important to him or her so that you can get it right on the test. There's no way you're going to know everything in all those books. Right. So what you have to do is you have to keep attention to, the, to, to your teacher to make sure that you know what they're going to ask you because you might be studying all this stuff next day. Not one question is what you studied. Mm-hmm. So I purposely told them because I wanted to, I wasn't playing with them. I told them, every one of my students, I said, let me tell you something so you can understand. There's one thing I will never do. I will never waste your time. Time is the most precious thing a human being has. I will never waste your time. And don't you ever waste mine. Mm. That's how, and that's how I feel in general about life. Time is precious. Yourself, Hotep Jesus, myself, and everyone that's listening to this, you are sharing with us as a group your most precious gift, mm. which is time. You put a, 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 a person on their deathbed and tell them, I can give you one thing. Whatever it is, you want money? I can get you another house, get you another pair of sneakers. Most people would ask, give me a little more time. Mm-hmm. Time is so precious. I never wasted time and I didn't play with my students. And I think that's what part of the benefit of my relationship with them was because they understood me and I understood them. I'm not here to play with you. Mm-hmm. I'm here to teach you something. I came 82 miles. You think I come here? Because they ain't paid me what I'm worth. I didn't come here for the money. <laughs> I came here because I care about you. Right. I really do. You are our future. And I want to feel like I have contributed to the betterment of the future. And so the week before the test, we'd go through all 25 questions. I would ask them, any, any questions? They say, how do you spell this? How do you spell Australopithecus? How do you spell Homo habilis? You know? Okay, get the spelling right. Because if you misspell it on my test, it's wrong. <laughs> get it right and then we would have the test and then we'd go over the test the day of the test and then they would mark their test and they would hand it in and I would put it in the record books I gave three of those I had a paper midterm paper end term paper But the most important thing that I told them that is going to be your grade is your notebook. Because you see, I see you on your laptop out there, okay? And I can see by the way you're looking at that screen, you are not typing notes about what I'm saying. Uh. So, hey, you want to play? And if you can get over on me, get over on me. But there's one thing you have to remember. I just left the middle school after all day teaching in a middle school. And middle schoolers believe that they invented slickness. <laughs> Real talk. <laughs> so every game you're going to try to play, they've already tried to play on me. Yeah. I'm ready for it. The notebook was the most important thing because when I, when I saw your notebook, that told me exactly what you got out of the class. And it's upon that that the ultimate grade came. Okay, you could be here uh, every class, and you could have done very well on every quiz. And you hand it in your midterm and your end term and everything else, but your notebook is going to tell me what you got out of this class. Wow. And I used to tell them, you know, I had students used to write rap. They would rap their, their notebook. 
Uh, some drew pictures. I said, I'm not telling you have to be scriptic about this. You don't have to write everything I'm saying. I told him how to do webs, web notes, where you can put the main idea in the middle and then give off lines, you know, yeah. and say history, geography. And then from history, you talk about history, geography, you talk about geography. You know, it's called semantic webbing. Okay. Because this system is not prepared for the students. This system we're in now, Kindle and Amazon are about to put the college campus bookstores out of business. Yes, yes. Can we backtrack real fast? Sure, brother. You said something about the students. You said uh, one set of students came with their phone and there was a difference between the two. I forget what that was, but can you talk to that point which you said there was different between those two? Some of them are on their phone in class. <laughs> what, just messing around, you're saying? Well, uh, yes, no. They were looking for the information that they had not done their homework. Oh, so they're trying to Google for the answers yeah, that you told them to be prepared for. Okay, I got you. They're Googling Noble Drew Ali. They're Googling Booker T. Washington. Because they did, in my day, if I didn't prepare myself, I was in trouble. <laughs> right, right. But when you got your phone with you, you got everything you need. Ah. Uh. Yeah, yeah, we're not teaching to that mind. We're still teaching to the minds that we had 40 years ago in college. Uh, okay. There's a whole nother world out there. So when I saw that, I had to adapt my expectations of the students because I came to realize, listen, they could they could they, they could not do anything when they get back to their dorms and still come to class and act like they prepared. Yeah. So how, a whole new world. So how did you adapt to that? Is was that like th what that notebook meant? Like yeah, that changed everything. <laughs> and also, brother, let me tell you something else. The the midterm paper, the end term paper. I say, look, I don't want no more than three pages. Wow, wow. Because, because I know for a fact when I was writing papers and I gave you a twenty five page paper, I know for a fact that twenty two of my pages was fluff, <laughs> and only three mattered. So yeah. give me the three that matter. Don't give me that 22 because I ain't got time for that. Remember, time is the most precious thing I have. I don't feel like reading your papers when there's fluff. Yeah. And the students used to say, your class is one of the most difficult classes I have because <laughs> you make me think. Uh. They could hustle the other professors. And I used to tell the professors, you know, people in, 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 in uh, the Black Studies Department, that's where I was. And I, and I would tell any professor that would listen to me, I say, look, let me tell you something. If I had my way of paying teachers, the highest paid teacher would be kindergarten teacher. Because, uh. you know, because I started as an early childhood teacher. I was a kindergarten teacher in New York when I first started. Okay. My primary license is early childhood. So, you know, I, you know, I just get down on the floor and read to the children. You know, I, you know, I used to have to walk them to the bathroom. Yeah. You know, and the female kindergarten teachers would take the girls and I would take the boys and we'd go to the bath. You know, we called it bathroom, bathrooming the children. Okay. Child fall in my classroom. I'm scared. Yeah. Get a little knot on the head. Cause I know mama coming in tomorrow. Mama going to say, where were you when my baby fell? <laughs> Why? What? You're, you're not watching the children. Yeah. Now in college, I tell the professors, I said, now in college, 
if a student come down the stairs and trip and fall, you say, get your, uh, you know, <laughs> get up off your ass, you know, you <laughs> get up. You know, you don't have to care. Kindergarten teachers are on call. As long as the children are in your presence, you're on call. And ain't nobody want to hear nothing. And I tell professors all the time, look, if you really want to understand teaching, if I had my way before you could ever get to a college professorship, at least a term in each grade, starting with kindergarten, now with pre-K, start there and work your way up to college. Hmm. Because one of my successes, Hotep Jesus, was the fact that when I looked out in my class and I saw that 19, 20 year old in my class in college, I knew exactly what they looked like when they were five. <laughs> and the way they acted in college, I know exactly how you got to act like that. Because uh, you was acting like that when you was in kindergarten. Indeed, indeed. But you see, college professors that get PhDs and then go right into college, they don't know that child. And, and I was vitally interested in my 19-year-old like I was in my nine-year-old. Hmm. And for some reason, when you get to college, there's a maturity that the, the teachers, educators, professors step back all of a sudden, and it's very impersonal. When I was on campus, students that uh, you know, were in my class or had heard about, they used to invite me back to the student uh, rooms in the dormitories and I would do classes. You talk about the Dogon. I do class on the Dogon. I do class on st uh, studying Stolen Legacy, the book by George G.M. James. I would talk to the fraternities and the sororities. We, 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 in, we instituted a program up in New Pulse because I told them a story about the N-word. Okay, I'm, I, 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 you know, I don't know if it's allowed to use that word. Nigga, 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 nigga. Okay, see, I don't have a problem with the N-word. I have a problem with the word nigger. But the problem I have is a very um, current problem. Okay. Because the word is sacred. Mm. It's a sacred word. And I always begin talking about the word nigger. I tell a story about this Russian woman that goes to Tibet and studies uh, Buddhism. And she brings back to Europe. She's Russian. She brings back to Europe the symbols and signs and the philosophies of Buddhism. Okay. And uh, there, there, there is a um, non-commissioned uh, military person in the German army that grabs a hold of one of the symbols. This symbol represents balance. Uh, it represents an elliptical uh, galaxy. It represents the power of ma'at, in mm. a sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you curve it, it becomes the yin and the yang mm. in Asia. Yep. And he emblazons this symbol on flags and on uniforms. And he begins to interact with people, a particular group of people, that he is a monster. He creates great pain for these people. He murders them. He puts them in chambers. And every time these people are being hurt, they see this symbol. So what became a beautiful symbol, a phenomenal symbol, became 
a horrific symbol because of their experience in viewing it. Hmm. I'm speaking of Adolf Hitler and the Schwarzdecker. Yeah. Which he turned backwards. Exactly. Hmm. And also, remember, he had an eagle on his helmet. That's why he called himself the Fuhrer, because that was German's concept of the Pharaoh. Mm. Mm. Hitler had a thing for Egypt. He had a thing for the occult. And I use that because everybody can understand that, because if I were to walk into a room of people of Jewish faith, and I were to draw that symbol on the board, not say a word, everybody would have a heart attack, and I might not get out alive. Indeed. That's the word nigger. Nigger is not a word, it's a sound. Nger, nger, ngola, mendingo, ngo, naga, neter, Negus negusti, unga. Unga is a sound that comes out that evokes a deep. That's why the N is the 14th letter of the alphabet and the M is the 13th letter because the M and the N following behind each other. That's why they look so much alike in the script. Mm -hmm. M is the only sound we make. The letter M is the only sound we make where your mouth must be closed. Indeed. Every other letter we sound, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, S, T, K, Q, R, S, Z, our mouth is open. But to say M, mother, mmm, mmm. And then from mmm comes mmm, mmm. It's sounds that you're dealing with in language. Right. But Western civilization never got the memo. <laughs> that is why the Greeks are caught up in Greek letters where they got from Africans that were dealing with the symbols. Okay. But the symbols came from the sounds. Language is sounds. Yeah. This, this is why when people have the type of voice that people enjoy listening to, there are things you could tell them in that tone of voice that someone else could say something even more powerful, but if your voice ain't right, they'd rather hear the lesser from the a pleasing sound than the more informative from the sound that may not be as attractive. Sounds become, that's why they're called phonons, hmm. sounds. So we're caught up in this word, and so when the when the uh, and they and they, you can't call them Romans and you can't call them Italians because they did not exist at this time. These are northern Germanic tribes that are coming down around the 300 BCs that are coming in contact with North Africa in a country called Etruria, where it is the Etruscans that are living there. And these Etruscans and Etruria is what we today call Italy. Okay. The original people living on what we call the boot were black. Uh-oh. And they came down from the northern steeps, come down into this area, encounter these African people in the Mediterranean, and they inquire as to who they are, and they say, Unger, Unger, Negus, Negusti, all these different sounds with the Unger, Unger. So they 
did not have a language until they enslaved the Greeks. So what they did is they took this word and put it in their vocabulary and it became, they, they could not pronounce the way in which Africans spoke. So they adjusted it to their own and Ungar became Nigro. And then Nigro coming through the different variations in Spanish and in, in Italian and in Romanian and in Portuguese became Negro. Negro coming to this part of the word became anglicized. Negro became Negro. And then dumb people, evil people, white supremacists who were fragile, insecure with inferiority, changed Negro to nigger. Okay. And black people who were being hung, murdered, raped, treated horribly, were being called nigger as they were being treated like that. Right. And what was a beautiful word, like that beautiful symbol, became a dirty word, became a bad word, became a peculiar word. So what I told young people, because we instituted what they today call, in fact, last year I went back and they brought me back to continue the legacy of this nigger day. <laughs> they actually call it nigger day. Okay. And I go through the process of understanding young people. Let me tell you something. The elders, myself included, we've been through some really hellacious times. I was born where I had to sit in the back of the bus. But I was born, if there was a water fountain that was for black people, it didn't work. And there was a water fountain for white that worked. I had to stay thirsty. Right. And I, and I remember a time when White Castle, black people could not go into White Castle. Mm. Uh -oh. I remember a time black people couldn't go into Krispy Kreme. What? Not my Krispy Kreme. Now, you know that's in trouble. Oh. Because I got to get my 30-minute donut. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, the idea is the fact that young people who are using this word so profusely actually are bringing the word back to what it actually meant. Because, mm. you know, when you, you know, oh, that's my nigger. And then how about a sister say, I love that nigger. Yeah. yeah. They're not using it in a negative way. Right. But let's be plain. White folk, you can't use that word. Uh-oh. You can't use that. Don't tell me because you hear me use the word that you can use. You can't use that word. You can't use that word for the same reason I find. So, some of the funniest jokes I have ever heard told about Jewish people were told by Jewish people. Right. But if I told that joke, it wouldn't be funny. Why not? Because I am not of that group. And so wait, therefore, when I tell a joke, I am mocking the group from the outside to the group. Jewish people can do it because if Jewish people tell a Jewish joke, look, I'm talking about me. If I'm putting you down, I'm putting me down. Right. Same thing with black folk. Same thing with Italian. I heard some funny jokes on Italian people, but it wouldn't be funny if I told that joke. Right. But in nature of the fact that I am not of Italian descent, that joke's not funny. Right. Now, I'm not saying everybody wouldn't find it funny, but there is something about the culture that we're living in that does not allow you to do that. Okay. And so the, the students 
are on a different level now. There's a new technology out here now. There's a whole new way of looking at the world that we just have to hook up and understand. You cannot teach college like you used to. You can't even assign books no more. When I was first uh, teaching college, going back to, well, I started teaching before that. I taught two years in in uh, downstate here. I taught a year in Fordham University. Yeah, yeah, they gave me a year, 1995. I taught in the spring in the winter spring term and I taught in the fall term and I taught race and multiculturalism <clears throat> that happened to be the same year of the million man March. And after the million man March, I brought six of the tallest, sturdiest brothers that had gone to the million man March to tell my students why it was important. I knew when I saw the Dean face, when he saw those brothers, I knew that was my last term. <laughs> <laughs> Them Jesuits said, oh, hell no. <laughs> you brought them up there for an event for nigga day or? No, no, no. I brought them to Fordham University. Oh, okay. When I, no, I'm, my bad brother. Let, let me be clear. Yeah. I taught between 2004 and 2016 at New Pulse. Right. 1987, I taught college at Toro College. I taught African-American literature. Okay. In 1995, that year, from January until December, I taught at Fordham University. Okay. The first term I taught in the Bronx up on Fordham Road. And then the second, I taught downtown at the law school. Okay. So the story I'm telling you is that in 1995, when I taught at Fordham University, that was the same October that the Million Man March occurred. Okay, I'm following. All right. And right after that Million Man March, I brought six brothers into the room to talk to my class in race and multicultural education, prim primarily people of European descent. Okay. Primarily of male, European male descent, Catholic and, I, and the brothers, when I walked in, the guard brother was smiling. <laughs> he said, I know this brother going to start something up in here. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was coming upstairs with the brothers, the brother said, look, uh, Booker T, let me ask you, because at the time I hadn't corrected my name yet. Right. Brother said, you know, how far can we take this? I said, you take it as far as you want to take it. There's no holds barred right now. Okay. It's, it's time for you to drop it like it's hot. Yeah. You know, just tell them. Tell them what happened. Tell them the truth. Tell them how you felt. Tell them how you feel now. In regards to oh, what? About the Million Man March. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're going to be coming to this class to explain about their experience at the yes. Million Man March. Okay. Yes. Because I taught race and multiculturalism. I said, this is a perfect time. Right to bring some brothers up in here and tell these Jesuits exactly what's going on. Right. And then brothers dropped it, boy. They were articulate. They were expressive, to the point, clear, concise. And it frightened the hell out of the white people. In the class or outside the class? Both. Or both. Okay, both. both. Wow. Okay. From the moment we walked in the building, <laughs> they because you know, like that don't happen because a lot of 
Okay. Especially in 95. Yeah, you're talking 95. 19, October 1995. End of October. Yeah. Not not yet Halloween. Yeah. Not yet now. Yeah. Could have been last week. 15 years ago to the day, practically. Man, these folk were, were no, man, 25. 25, you're right, my bad. No, 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 it's cool. I just want to get the numbers right. Right, yes. You know, you're talking about a generation ago. Yeah. There are people that are watching this that may not have been born. Facts. When this happened. But what I saw was a fear. But in my head, I kept saying, but these brothers did not say anything that should create a fear. Okay. So why are they afraid? And it was amazing what I experienced. It was phenomenal. My, my educational career, Hotep Jesus, was <laughs> it has been eye-opening and understanding, and that's what I bring to your program, to this discussion, are not just things I've studied, but things I've experienced. Yeah, yeah. So... What do you think that fear was rooted in? Why do you think they were afraid? Insecurity and deeply steeped inferiority complex. Fragility. Because these brothers were strong physically yes. or mentally? All of it. All of it. They were in presence. And they, they never experienced that before. They never experienced it or every time they experience it, they get the same feeling of inferiority and insecurity because all the stories that they daddies and granddaddies told them about the inferiority of melanated people they've come to realize they lied they lied they lied to make you feel better about yourself when all they had to do was tell you to be your best you would never have to have had that yeah and that was your last time at that university that was your last Last term, yeah. Last term. <laughs> that was it, that was, but you see, I didn't care. Right. And I've never really cared. Yeah. Because I've always been on my hustle. Right. And, and by that, I mean, I always had ways of being able to make money. Okay. Not rich, but I always had a way to pay the rent, take care of the children, take care of my wife, take care of the, the, the survival. I, 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 I lived... For, for human beings, all of us, there, there are two levels. Dr. Edwin Nichols talks about this. There's a survival mode and there's a thrival mode. Okay. This society tries to keep everybody in the survival mode. Right. Always surviving, always trying to pay the rent, mm -hmm. always trying to find ways to feed the family. Because as long as you are surviving, you cannot thrive. And as long as you cannot thrive, you cannot compete with them. And you can't innovate. You can't. Because you're too busy trying to figure out the present. You can't think about the future. It's not that you can't. See, they say black people don't have the capacity to think. It's not that black people don't have the capacity to think of the future. Damn, I'm trying to think of right now. Right. I don't have time to think of tomorrow when I'm trying to get through today. Yeah. Because you're always in survival mode. We're always in survival mode. Once we get to the point where we can survive and then get a little something, then you're in the thrival mode. And as you get into the thrival mode, you get to be more thrival mm -hmm. and more thrival. Because once you get there, 
you're you're in a real strong place because it's only up from there. Now you can get knocked back down, but the bottom line is is that if you got the right thing going, once you get out of that survival mode and you get into a little bit of thriving way, I can pay the rent, I got uh, um, uh, food on the table, I'm taking care of my children, they're very comfortable, I don't have to worry about uh, uh, suffering or anything like that. Once you get there, the next step is your first step in Thrive. Okay, now we can go to the movies on Friday. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know, now, I, now I can download that DVD or something like that. Yeah. You know? Because all my life, man, I, you know, I, you know, back in the day, I, I used to sell tokens so that I could buy dinner for my family. Tokens? What do you mean? Subway. Oh, yeah. See, I'm oh, sorry, bro. The subway tokens. Right, the sub, yeah, subway tokens. Yeah, they had a little hole in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even after that, when they had the solid ones, yeah, but it's the, it's the tokens. Right. And there was a time you could sell them back. Really? And, and, and get your money back. Oh, okay. Back in the day. Yeah. And there were times that I would walk home from work to be able to cash in my token mm. to buy food for the family. Mm. And I was a teacher. So it's not like I didn't have a job, you know? Right. But, uh, you know, there, there is such a thing as the working poor. Right. And so we as a people have always been in survival mode. Mm -hmm. But once we get into thriving mode, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm. Once we get a respect for finances, once we understand finances, ain't nothing wrong with having money. In fact, it's a beautiful thing. In fact, black folk live very luxuriously. Black folk, you know, you know, they'll show you on Tarzan and all those movies I grew up in. They'll show you Africans with loincloth on. But they show, but they show you black folk during the day. Well, go over to Orchard Beach or Venice Beach in California. You gonna see people in loincloth too. They, 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 they call bathing suits. <laughs> but later on, they don't show you that African that was in loincloth in the heat of the day with that luxurious kinty cloth on at night. Uh, talk to them. You see, they only show you the African during the day with the unga, unga, bawa, bawa, unga, you know, that language that, you know, people don't even, that, that's nonsense. Yeah. Black folk don't talk like that. Black folk have been able to communicate before the Eurasian ever existed on the planet. Uh. We gave the world language. Yeah. Context, grammar, rhetoric, logic. We gave that to them, and they still didn't get it right <laughs> to this day. <laughs> all this stuff that we're going on right now, all this big election, this is a war between rhetoric and logic, mm. which is the art of persuasion. Rhetoric is bullshit. Okay. When you convince somebody through emotion, logic is when you convince somebody through science. Okay. So they got people out here trying to make you think rhetorically. Mm. So they got all this emotion going on. Mm. Hey, 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 man, check this out. Okay. Drop it on us. Wednesday. We find out who the president is. Yes. Next Wednesday, we find out who it is. Donald Trump 
if you and I talk on Wednesday, this is how I'm gonna look at you. Donald Trump won. Ah. Uh, okay. Is that, a is that a prediction? No, no, okay. because I'm gonna okay. get the other side. Okay, all right. Okay, I'm following, all right. Wednesday, you and I talk. Biden won. Okay. This is how I'm gonna look at you. <laughs> Biden won. It don't mean a damn thing to me, Hotep Jesus, who wins. <laughs> it's up to us. It's always been up to us. Yeah. We live through the devil. You think we can't handle this? Mm. Stop it. We have to grow. We we have to grow to a mind to understand something. Harriet Tubman never worried who the president was when she was on the Underground Railroad. Yeah. Nat Turner did not say, oh, damn, should I do this now? Who's the president? Right. What are we waiting for? Dr. Clark used to teach us this concept about the Messiah complex and ego starvation. Okay. The Messiah complex he used to teach us was that person that's looking for a savior. Mm looking for someone to save them from the predicament that they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. Ego starvation. That's the person that is seeking to make people believe that they can save them. It's a toxic relationship. Mm. Messiah complex looking to be saved from anything outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. Ego starvation, the person that's going to try to convince the Messiah complex that they are your Messiah. Mm, mm, mm. Quite frankly, it's the same relationship between a pimp, a prostitute, and a John. Mm, mm. The only difference is what you're selling. <laughs> I, I like how you put that ego starvation because I wouldn't think about it like that. Oh, yeah, man. Ego starvation, man. Looking for the applause. Mm. Hotep Jesus, and to those listening to this conversation, I spent my life trying to stay in the background. I, I, I spent my life. Dr. Clark used to always say to me, he used to say, look, man, you can accomplish whatever you want as long as you don't run out in the street and tell people what you're doing. He said, the more popular you become, the more power you lose. And I live my life doing things behind the scenes mm. up until Hidden Colors. Right. That's when I got into Because when Hidden Colors hit, see, back in the day when we used to do, you know, they had video cassettes and audio cassettes. Right. And what happened was, in fact, I've got a machine now where they could convert video cassettes into DVDs. Right. And that's what they did. With the dawn of YouTube, people started putting up my presentations on converted DVDs. Mm -hmm. When Hidden Colors came out in the spring of 2011, right. people started researching all the people that were in Hidden Colors. Yes. And one of the things that, when you look at Hidden Colors 1, when you look at the people in Hidden Colors 1, those are the people that were put up on YouTube in the beginning. Yes. Because that's how Ola, who is the right hand to Tariq, called me uh, in the uh, spring of 2010. And he said, you know, brother, we follow your work. 
there's a brother out in California wants to do a film and he'd like you to be in it. It's, it's called Hidden Colors. And he, and he said, are you interested? And I said, sure. And so somewhere like going into the fall, they called me, we arranged for them to come up to a class I was teaching in Harlem on 123rd Street. And in fact, when you look at Hidden Colors 1, you're watching me in the classroom and my students are behind the cameras. Okay. Because I, I invited them to come to my class. So I said, that's the perfect time to, to film me because you know this space is mine. I'm in a school, I'm running my own class. My students would be there. I know they'll enjoy it. Yeah. So come on up to my class. It was on a Thursday in December of 2010. Okay. And after Hidden Colors, ancestors and the creator said, no, brother, we're pulling you out. People got to see you now. <laughs> Man, I can't pick my nose. I can't scratch my butt. I can't do nothing in public. People be taking pictures. <laughs> and that's what Dr. Clark meant when he said, the more popular you become, the more power you will lose because people are watching you. There are things you can't do anymore. There are things I can't do anymore. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, picking my nose, things like that. That's separate. Right. That's a joke. Right. I, I'm talking about real things I used to do. I'm going to write a book about what I did. But I tell people all the time, I ain't writing my autobiography until I'm too old to care what people think about me. Right. Because right now, you know, I mean, 20 years, man, look, I'd be dead 20 years. If they find out what I've done on this planet, they'll exhume my body. The judge will say, bring that up into my court. <laughs> they'll exhume my body, bring my casket out. Uh. Judge will say, death penalty. Mm. The lawyer say, but your honor, he dead. Oh, well, just put the casket in a prison. <laughs> you know, he, I'll give him life and death. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. There were things that could be done. And I'm not talking about crimes. Please understand that. Right. I ain't talking about crime. I'm just talking about things you can do. Yeah. Ways in which you can move your people to certain points of understanding. That you just can't do anymore because people are watching. Right. Now, that's a beautiful thing. And I appreciate that recognition. And I do not take advantage, nor do I in any way believe it anything other than a blessing. I'm just saying it's a different way of living now. Because back in the day, I, I could do stuff. I could walk through the community and people would not recognize me. And that's where Hotep came from. See, folk don't really understand the origins of that word Hotep. Okay. So now we got these concepts of Hotep nigger and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah. Folk don't understand Hotep. Hotep came in the 70s. It came through groups of Africans going to Kemet or Egypt for the first time. Mm. Uh, Sister Raketi Wimby and Jacob Carruthers, Maulana Karenga talking about Meduneter, no more hieroglyphics, mm. Meduneter. And they gave us a word that meant peace, not just peace, eternal peace. You, do you know what it is, Hotep Jesus, to live in eternal peace and bliss? That feeling, mm. we ain't felt that in so long. Mm. But imagine what bliss is like. Imagine what it's like that you know that you're gonna eat. You don't have to worry about food. You don't have to worry about lodging. You don't have to worry about your children playing in the neighborhood because ain't nobody going to mess with them. 
strangers can walk into your neighbor, uh, uh, into your community and never worry about being attacked or murdered. Mm -hmm. African people lived like that one time. Right. And they created a word for that. It was hotep. Imhotep, Yemhotep means I come in peace. Yemhotep. Shememhotep means I leave you in peace. Mm. So you and I encounter each other. I say to you, Yemhotep. You say to me, Yemhotep, which means, hey, brother, I come in peace. And then when we depart, we're going to leave each other. We say, Shememhotep. Shememhotep. Means I leave you in peace. I came to you in peace. I'm going to leave you in peace. You, 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 the beauty of that, of that feeling hit us back in the 70s when we were going to commit for the first time with Dr. Ben, mm. Richard King, Asa Hilliard, Tony Browder. Mm. Okay. And when we would encounter each other, we would say, Hotep. Okay. And Hotep created an entire environment like, yo, you know Hotep, you know what Hotep mean? Well, you brother, you're a sister, Hotep. It was like being in an oasis in a desert of hate and evil. Ooh. That was what Hotep means. In that moment, we had that peaceful bliss. We did because we came upon a person that knew something. Mm. And where we were at that time, that was bliss. Not bless, it was bliss. Nirvana, the nun, the beginnings of all and everything. Hotep was a sacred word, just like nigger was. Mm. But somebody came along and dirtied it. Somebody came along and wanted to make it so that we wouldn't wish each other eternal peace. Mm. So they made it a joke. They made it something that I'm ashamed to talk about. Hotep was a sacred sound. Even if I were in a room and I'd be in a certain section and somebody else would be in another and, and all of a sudden they might be speaking to each other. They say, Hotep, oh my God, I'm looking at him now. How you know Hotep? I'm looking at him. Whoa, <laughs> hey. That brought us together. And then when they saw me looking at them, that brought us together. Right. It was like a cosmic glue. That's what Hotep was. Right. And man, we lost that. But we got it because I still say Hotep. Hmm. I don't care what anybody, that's why I say Hotep Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> because that means something to me. It means something to me because I know what it meant to us back in the 70s yeah. when we were scratching out of this. And then coming Dr. Theophilio Benga and Dr. Shekhanta Jupp from Senegal. And then came the writings of Ivan Van Sertima. They came before Columbus. There was an explosion in New York City. They had First World Alliance that brought in Dr. Naeem Akbar from Florida, dropped the knowledge on us, brought some of the greatest minds the world has ever known every Saturday from four to six, 145th Street and Convent Avenue in Harlem. Mm. 
man, that was that was a golden age. And out of that golden age came a word that meant eternal bliss and peace to you. Peace be upon you. That's where assalamu alaikum comes from. Mm. That, that is where shalom alaikum comes from mm. in Hebrew. Peace. And that's the greatest thing that any human being can offer another. You are safe in my presence. Peace. Mm. You have nothing to fear from me. Hotep. Mm. 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 Dang. Powerful. Powerful. You know, it's like, it's touching me because I watched them dirty it. Mm-hmm. At a time when our community was hurting, we lost Mike Brown, Trayvon mm-hmm. Martin. Mm-hmm. It's all good, brother. It's all good. And I couldn't let him do that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't let him do that. And then so, you know, I did the best I could to try and preserve it and and give it righteousness. And and then I hit Rogan. And that was a big, big part of my life. And then I got in contact with you through through that experience on Rogan. Mm. And like you said, everything goes full circle. And here I am with you now. Yep. And to hear you say, Hotep Jesus, and having that blessing. Mm. No, we're not alone in this fight. It's just truly touching, man. Oh, yeah. Truly touching. Oh, yeah. Oh, brother, you're not alone. You know, thanks to uh, at ancestralfootprints.com, brother. Let me just drop this on you and, and, and the community. And this kind of conversation will continue as we move forward. But just real quick. Yeah. Each of us has two parents. Each of us has four grandparents, eight great grandparents. We just talked about a couple of generations. But if you go back 20 generations, your your 20 generations, my 20 generations, everybody that's watching this program, if you went back 20 generations, which basically, if you look at 20 years as a generation, you're dealing with 400 years. In dealing with 400 years, I'm taking you back. This is 2020. I'm taking you back to 1620. Just to 1620. That ancestor that started this process that brought you into existence, Otep Jesus, and every generation that followed, if you added up all of those human beings that you carry within you since 1620, you are carrying 1,048,000, 
576 human beings in you. Mm. So who say you feel alone? You go back to 1620, brother, you got 1,048,576 human beings that made it possible for you to sit on the other side of that microphone right now. Mm. Now, I only went back 1620. Right. What happens if I took you back to the Twa people who were the first original family, take you back a couple million years? How many people you think make you up? Mm. How many billions of people are you? In reality, we alone? Oh, no, we're not alone. We never walk alone. Mm -hmm. We walk with our ancestors. We talk with our ancestors. We are our ancestors. Right. So we have nothing to fear right now. Okay, so we got into a little situation. We were rudely interrupted by a people who knew not to create it, but we're going to take care of that. Nature helping us out right now. We're going to get through this. We will get past this. But my question to each and every one of us, what have we learned? We have to shake this off, man. And I understand exactly why they forbid us from reading. Mm. Because what I know now about us, if I were them, I would never want me to know what I know. <laughs> <laughs> Real talk. That's it, man. What you know, Hotep Jesus, what you know, what you've learned, what you've accomplished, that's a miracle, brother. Mm. You That wasn't supposed to happen. Mm. In fact, we're not even supposed to have this conversation the way <laughs> stuff was going down. First of all, we should never have been able to read the manuals that taught us how to get on the computer in the first place. Mm. They knew what they were doing when they forbid us from reading. And, you know, if I were them, I would have done the same thing, except I would have done one thing different. When black people were so-called free in 1865, I would have lined up all black people and killed them. Mm. Because I would have seen this day coming. Mm. And now this day is here. And they don't know what to do. They thought they knew what they were doing in 2016. They think they know what they're doing in 2020. But remember this on Wednesday when you see me, brother? I'm going to be like this, or I'm going to be like this. Ain't nothing going to change until we change. Indeed. Indeed. We, we, we're waiting for someone to come and save us, brother, not realizing that we are our own saviors. And Jesus saves those who save themselves. Mm. So In fact, each of us is Jesus having a human experience. Mm. Mm. Expound, expound. We are the creator having a human experience. Each and every one of us is the grounding of exactly what the creator is made of. Our purpose was to be able to search within ourselves to realize that we are the creator having a human experience. And the entire story in Christianity, in Judaism, Islam and Buddhism, agnostic, Zoroastri, Rosicrucian, I could go through the gamut from A to Z. Mm -hmm. It all can be found on the walls of ancient Egypt. That was the purpose of my writing the book, Spirituality Before Religions. 
because I, you know, people, uh, a brother contact me the other day, say, uh, brother, I grew up Christian. My family's really Christian, but I'm beginning to learn things. Like, should I throw the Bible away? Mm. I say, no, don't throw the Bible away. Don't throw the five books of Moses away. Don't throw the Quran away or the Rig Veda. Because I can show you where all those scriptures are on the walls and papyri of Africa. Genesis, I can show you where Genesis is in the Shabaka stone. Mm. The whole crucifixion of Christ, I can show you that in the pyramid text. I can show you the purpose behind the altar and what happens when the priest creates what is known as the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Mass. I can show you where that came directly off the walls of Africa. Mm. I don't have a problem with any religion. I have a problem with the interpretation of the religion. I, you, know, you know, I did a presentation, a sister during question, and she said, Brother Kaba, there's only just one thing I want to know. Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? <laughs> and I said, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Okay. She sat down, took a few other questions. All of a sudden, the brother come. Brother said, yo, Brother Kaba, I'm really disappointed, man. I, You know, I like your work, man. I follow your stuff. But you're going to say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? What's up with that? And I said, well, brother, and to my sister, you both asked me a question or you made a statement. But none of you asked me to interpret what my statement was. Mm. Sister asked me if Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior. She never asked me my perception of who Jesus was. Indeed. I said, now you came and you heard me say that. You never asked me, well, brother, exactly who is Jesus? Mm, exactly. I said, now let me tell you who Jesus is. I'm Jesus. The sister almost had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> and the brother looked kind of quizzical, but they both understood my point. There's nothing wrong with any, you know, brother, let, let me tell you, I have a lot of respect for Christianity. My brother, um, my teacher, uh, Dr. Amos Wilson, he used to tell us that, great psychologist, he used to tell us that a great organization solves its people's problems and meets its people's needs. Right. Uh, the Nation of Islam solved black people's problems and met people's needs. Look, Reverend Ike's church solved people's problems and met people's needs. Hmm. Daddy Grace, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the UNIA, any organization that was successful met the people's basic needs. If you were hungry, you could find someone that would feed you. If you were naked, you could find someone to give you some clothing. Right, right. If you have a house, they would find a place where you could stay. And they would not strip you of your humanity or your dignity while doing it. They met your needs and solved your problems. On the plantations of the, of the colonies, Christianity solved our people's problems and met our people's needs. That story of Jesus, this poor man didn't have nothing. This brother so poor used to walk the earth with one sandal at a time. In all of my study, 
I grew up Roman Catholic, and all of my study of biblical texts, New Testament, I never heard Jesus say, I'm going home. Mm. If I were to look for Jesus today, I'd go underneath the Bruckner, Bru Bruckner uh, Boulevard Bridge. Mm -hmm. If I was looking for Jesus today, I would go into a shelter, because that's where Jesus was. First of all, when the brother was born, they, they had to put him in, in the barn. There's no room in the inn. You you got to marry Joseph. You got to go to the barn. So I knew something was up when he was born in the barn and I was living in the project. <laughs> Jesus and I had something in common right there. Right. And then, and then he was just born and Herod is chasing him across the town because he want to kill him. Mm. If that's not George Floyd, I don't know who is. Uh. And so... This Christianity served a purpose for our people mm -hmm. who were in pain. Many of us would not be here today if it wasn't for Christianity. Mm -hmm. No matter what that belief system was, it gave us the psychological ability to be able to endure the pain and the torture of living with living devils. Mm. It gave us that power. But here's the country. However, <laughs> when an organization no longer solves your problems and meets your needs, whenever a spiritual system no longer solves your problems and meets your needs, it's like carrying the boat on your back after you cross the river. Mm. What was once your vehicle of escape becomes the object of your burden. The boat was meant to be docked. Don't carry it on your back on land. It becomes a weight after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And many of us are still carrying that boat on our back. Mm. We got to dock that boat because you might have to go back over. Dock it. But don't carry it on land. Mm. Mm. So I have no problem with religions. I respect Christianity. I might not be here. My daddy from Alabama. I might not be here. One of my ancestors might have committed suicide. Mm -hmm. One of my ancestors might not have been able to develop themselves and things would have happened where I would not be here today. I don't curse Christianity. I say, let's reinterpret it with an African eye. Mm. And that's why I wrote Spirituality Before Religions. I wanted to look at spirituality. Who were we? before we organize ourselves into these band and gangs. Because mm. everybody can say what they want to about the Bloods and Crips, but religions are also gangs. Yes, yes, indeed. Police department is a gang. Yep. The fire department is a gang. Mm -hmm. Sanitation is a gang. The difference between a gang and a social organization is your intentions. Mm. So these are the types of things as we move forward, Brother Hotep Jesus, that we have to start thinking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like calling you Hotep Jesus, brother. Do you? Yeah, man. It's a very interesting, you know, the, you see, again, see, because I'm into sounds. Yeah. You hear the word Hotep come out one way and Jesus another. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You know, when I first heard it, you know, somebody um, who was trying to use Hotep as a pejorative, 
actually gave me that name. Okay. They, they said, you think you some type of hotep Jesus. And when it, I first saw it on Twitter, it, yeah. it just hit me. And I was like, yeah, yeah I am hotep Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you get deep inside of the meaning of both words, you come to understand, yeah, I, I like that. So, you know, a lot of times people think you and they, they insulting you, but you know, we're living in very interesting times. Because when a fool calls a wise man a fool, that's a compliment. Mm -hmm. mm. I'm worried about when a fool calls me intelligent. Mm. Mm. So keep coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get into some super chats here. Um, Chad Lemoyne, what up, Chad? Nine 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 super chat. He said, "I'm gonna have to catch the rest of the replay." Hotep to the people, bless the two great men. Hotep, Saxies, uh, twenty dollars super chat. Appreciate you, Kent the Row. He says, "So many drums being dropped tonight. Thank you both for making it time already, man." Christian Gomez said, two, 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 two for having him a second time. I appreciate it. Worthy guest, much respect, Professor. You inspire me. Yeah, uh, Doctor Kaba Kamene is the first individual I've ever had on my channel twice, and that is on purpose. Um, Craig Gilbo Jr. He said, uh, much love to OG Kaba. If we have time, can you please briefly break down why we have Black History Month? <laughs> All right, we'll get into that and then we'll move into uh, solar energy. Markel Fowler, um, Hiawatha, always uh, brilliant and insightful. Can you point us to literature about your namesake that gave America its blueprint? Thank you, HJ, for teaching the people already. Uh, Aztec Mecca, uh, Hotep to the people. Grateful for these convos starting from the beginning, but wanted to show some support. What up, Aztec? Appreciate you. Psych L Variety, Hotep, Hotep. Halima, uh, Wa Alam Alaikum, Asalama, Wa Wa Baraka, Tuhu. Uh, try my best on that. Uh, peace be unto you and your angels be well and thank you this evening. Appreciate you, Halima. Always love. Um, Logan Rocksmith said, Might shed a cracker tear. Infinite love. <laughs> Um, so yeah, do you want to, um, address Black History Month, I guess, and then we'll move into, uh, solar energy? Well, you know, what's interesting is that, um, it always existed, but it was formalized in the 1920s by Carter G. Woodson as Negro History Week. Right. Where he decided that he felt it was important because the only way that we were exposed to anything of African American history was through American history. That's why the, the the first book that I wrote on William Leo Hansberry, William Leo Hansberry, friend of Carter G. Woodson, was the one that he was the first to have an actual African history class at Howard University in 1923. Okay. We didn't study our history formally. What Carter G. Woodson did was to develop a week out of 52 that would focus on the history of African and African-American people so that we could get a sense because there was a thrust in the early 1900s going into the 1910s after World War I going into the Roaring Twenties, um, the rise of Marcus Garvey's UNIA, the idea of the Harlem Renaissance, this all brought concepts of black excellence. And it was codified and organized as a week. 
it happened to be in February. Hmm. Uh, and then a week became a month. And of course, I deal with concepts that it's, it's a lifestyle. You know, you know, fish don't go into water for one month out of a year. They, they live in the water all the time. Right. Culture is something that you live. It's something that you breathe. It's something that you present. And you know what's interesting, very interesting, and just to talk to the hip-hop nation, is to understand that hip-hop, see, and this is what my son did. My son was able, he said, yo, dad, you know, I know you don't like the words, okay? You're hearing all these different words. He said, but you got to get into the beats. Hmm. Hip-hop is about the beats. The words are, because, you know, I come from Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, Motown Sound, where words, Curtis Mayfield, you know, where words were just used and turned and done and, you know. But the idea is that it's the beats. Yeah. Going, you know, going back to the sounds, to the phonons, it's the beats. But if you go deep inside the beat, what you will hear is the original language spoken on the planet by the Twa Mbuti people in Central Africa. In South Africa today, it is called the click language. Mm. The click language is hip hop. Mm. Uh-oh. See, we got to get deep now to understand how we carry this legacy with us. Mm. We're going back millions of years to the original language spoken, which came from nature to the human that created a click language. And then the human family began to develop phonons or sounds that would separate the clicks that we call vowels because clicks are consonants. Right. That's when you're using sounds that are hard. But then you have a, a, e, o, u, u, a. You know, the vowels separate the consonants, which create words, which create language, which creates grammar, which creates rhetoric and logic, which creates the dialectic, which we call language arts. And so I tell brothers and sisters who are into hip hop, listen, you have to deal with the fact that you're carrying a legacy. You know, remember we talk about the million people we carry with us. Well, you go back far enough. You went to the click language. Mm. And I believe that what hip hop is offering us is a view into a click language because we got so used to the smoothness of the words created after click that hip hop is bringing us back to click. Mm. Which are, which is beats. Mm. So we carry this legacy. It's rhythm, yeah. And, and that's what Michael Jackson say. When you get up there and you start, see, ain't nothing wrong with twerking. Black folk do twerking all the time in Africa. Twerk is part of our, twerk is part of how we do our thing, man. We had a dance in my generation. We called it the freak. <laughs> we used to all freak. We used to, there was a song called Freak Out. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was twerking of the 70s, because we was freaking too, boy, let me tell you. <laughs> what we was doing on that dance floor, hey, it was something else, bro. But the point I'm making is that there's nothing wrong with twerk. What's wrong with twerk is what's wrong with what's on your mind when you're watching a sister gyrating her beautiful body. Mm. Mm. You know, brothers go to Africa, you know, I have to stay in my room for, for a couple of days. Because in Africa, when you walk in, in the community and you see a sister, 
I'm talking about when you go deep inside the community, you see a sister walking bare breasted mm. and she is anatomically gifted as sisters that, she, that we have here in the United States of America. Do you know what goes on in a, 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 a African raised in the United States when he sees a sister anatomically correct, bare breasted? I began to realize, man, you ought to be ashamed of yourself the way you're thinking. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with twerking. There's nothing wrong with nudity. It's what goes on in your mind when you're observing it. And because we're in a Western world, we have a nasty, filthy mind. Mm. We have inherited that mind. Can't help it, but you know, you gotta stay up in your room for a couple of days, get your head together because you realize, hey man, you can't go out on the street thinking like that. In, in Africa, zero rape in, in many communities. Yes. But let, let, I don't speak in absolutes. Right. But in many of the indigenous communities in Africa, people can walk. It's hot. Plus, the idea of breasts is not meant to be an erogenous zone. Breasts are not meant to turn you on. They're meant to feed you. So the reason why even women are attracted to breasts, mm. not because it's sensual or sexual, it's because the first passion we satisfy when we come out of mommy is to get on her nipple and be fed. Mm. It's our first passion, right. breasts. And the reason why some women are putting all sorts of stuff up in them breasts to make them bigger than they were born to be is because big breasts creates interest. You know, women always have the joke about, you know, my eyes are up here because mm. we're always looking at breasts, particularly if they are anatomically correct. But the reason why we're so fascinated with breasts is not because they're sensual. Oh, no, they're sensual, but the passion that they fulfill is one of hunger, primitive hunger. Mm. To feed off, that's the first thing they do with a baby born. They put them on mother's breast. Right. That's our attraction to breast. So when a woman is walking bare-breasted, that should not turn us on in the way in which we think sexually. It turns us on passionately, but not sexually. But we're in such a warped society that we don't understand why we're attracted to what we're attracted to. Because we really don't know who we are, Hotep Jesus. We really don't. I'm talking about all humans. Okay. We really don't know who we are. We don't know our purpose on this planet. We don't know why we've been born. And we think that the more cars we have and the more sneakers that we may wear and, and, and the money that we have and all these other things is, is our purpose. No, it's not. That's all good. That's all good. And you deserve it if you work for it. But that's not why you're on this planet. You're on this planet to figure out the fact that you are the creator having a human experience, given a divine gift that was meant to be contributed to the society to make it a better place. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes, what are you doing to fulfill that divine destiny? Mm -hmm. we, have to recollect. We, have, we have to recollect, brother. We have to pull it back now. And now that we're moving into this time of the year, 
And now that the threats of, of the outside world are here and Mother Nature is talking to us, she is, she is, she's been warning us. Just like mama say, you know, when the kids are acting up in the house, mama say, look, don't make me have to get up out this chair. <laughs> kids still act up. She said, I'm gonna tell you all for the last time now, don't make me get up out this chair. We still acting up, we hitting each other, we're fighting throwing things around, making the house dirty. Mama get up, she starts smacking. She said, go to your room. COVID did not drop a bomb, did not, did not fire a shot, made everybody around the world go into their homes. Mm. Nature is talking to us. Nature told us for billions of years, this earth existed without you. We brought you to be the masterpiece of the earth. I didn't bring you into this world to act the way you're acting. I brought you in and I'll take your ass out. Until then, go to your room and think about how you've been acting. And when we went in our room, we turned the TV on and we saw a policeman with his knee in the neck of a black man. We saw a beautiful sister with her loving husband, boyfriend, fiance. We watched the police shoot her in bed. Last time I saw something happen like that, the person's name was Fred Hampton in Chicago. That's what we saw when we were in our room. And for the first time, when we watched Ahmaud Arbery, and we watched all the other things that were going on. We remembered all the things that happened in the past. Eric from Staten Island. We remembered all that. And this pandemic gave us a chance in our time out to ask ourselves, what the hell is going on? Is this really what this world is supposed to be? I'm talking to all people now. Is this what this is supposed to be about? Is this the world that we want to live in? You talk about a race war? You want a race war? Okay, NFAC, we got you. You want a race war? You have a problem with us simply because we exist? You want a race war? Otep Jesus, and to the family that's listening, I come from a generation of Black Panthers. I know what the Black Panther Party was doing. This present generation is nowhere near where the Black Panthers were. The Black Panthers laid the foundation, there's no question. I was a cub, laid the foundation for NFAC. You got a problem with NFAC? Not your, okay? You got a problem with them? Wait 20 years. If you think this is something, keep acting the way you're acting. Keep your knee in our neck. And in 20 years, not only will you not have a knee, you ain't gonna have a neck. Mm. Black folk can only take this but for so long. Hispanic people can take this but for so long. Listen, when, when uh, our brother, our beloved brother, George called out for mama, he wasn't just calling out for his birth mama. He was, talk, he was calling out 
for Mama Nature. He was calling out for the Black Cosmic Mother to come. As Jesus on the cross said, you know, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That's what George Floyd said. Mm. He said, Mama, into your hands I commend my spirit. And that was heard across the world. Because European mothers, European American mothers have been interviewed and even they said that was the turning point. Because everybody knows when you call mama, it's your last breath. It's your last hope to live. Whenever a child's in trouble <laughs> or whenever a child is in pain, what do you do? You don't call daddy, <laughs> you call mama. Because mommy is your only refuse for peace and tranquility. And every mother knows that. Not just having been a child with a mother, but being a mother with a child. Everybody felt that in Africa, in IT. They were chanting George Floyd's name in communities in Africa that don't speak English. Mm. They were having voodoo ceremonies in IT. Jorge. Georgia, George Floyd, calling his name in IT. They were calling his name in Australia, in Europe. And when those babies south of the border, from Guatemala and El Salvador, called for their mothers as they were being ripped from their mother's arms, that's the same mama that George Floyd was calling for. Mm. Mommy has come home to right the wrongs of white supremacy and white fragility. And I ask our friends, whose side you on? I ain't asking you to be on my side. You better be on nature's side. Because we are nature's children. Mm -hmm. Nature not happy with us now, Hotep Jesus. Mm. They're concerned. And what's about to happen over the next couple of days, next couple of months, Going into 2021, it ain't never going to be the same again. You mark my words. No. Nah. It'll never be the same again. Mm. Mm. It, it's time because out of chaos comes order. Talk. Real talk. Who is that? Um, Monique 2C, uh, 1999 Super Chat. Appreciate you. She said, uh, thank you, Brother Kaba, for sharing your plethora of knowledge. Um, peace and blessings. Peace and blessings. Let's talk, let's talk uh, solar energy. Okay. There's, I'd like uh, to say that again? No, no, you, no, please, brother. If you complete your thought, and then I'll tell you what I said. Okay. Um, there's a, I believe it was a Chinese brother that, that wrote a book or something like that, I believe you said. Uh, and he's broken this thing down into uh, four four pillars or something like that. Uh, make oh, me familiar. Sure. Japanese brother, Dr. Michu Kaku, professor at City College of New York. Um, he's um, he's a theorist, a, 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 a scientific theorist, and he's he's written a book called The Physics of the Future. Okay. And it went into our conversation that we were talking earlier about, you know, the concern of culture and People that know me know I teach culture. I'm very deep into culture, but I'm also into uh, 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 science and culture. 
And I found his book very interesting because he wrote a book. Well, in his book, he in his introduction, Dr. Kaku talks about uh, the fact that in like 1916, give or take, in that area, 100 years ago, let's say, scientists convened to look at what the future held in science. And the very best scientific theorists came together and they presented their ideas as to what they saw. Now, now, mind you, when this occurred, and I'm not sure of the date, but in the book it talks about, there were no cars on the road like they are now. Mm. There were no airplanes in the sky. We're talking about 100 years ago now. There, there were no computers, so to speak. There were no TVs. Radio was just getting up off the ground. Morse code was in. So if, you, if we can imagine a world where there are no cars, there's no airplanes, there's no TV, you know, you're barely dealing with radio. You're, you know, it's a very interesting world. But they, they saw this coming. And in their prophecy, they saw TVs. In their prophecies, uh, they, they talked about concepts of, of machines that we today call computers. Um, they were just beginning concepts of flight. But they weren't airplanes in the sky like they are now. And what he said, Michukaku said that when we look at the world now, what has happened in science by geometric progression is beyond what they even fictionalized back then. Mm. We have come much further scientifically. And so this book is meant to present ideas as to what the world will look like in 2116. What's the title of that book? It's called The Physics of the Future by Michio, M-I-C-H-I-O, Kaku, K-A-K-U. When I share my screen with you, I'll, I'll right. talk to you about a few things. Okay. But this basically is what it is. And what I'm saying to our community is as African people, we can do all the talk about knowing about Nubia, Kush, Kemet, the mathematics of the pyramids. But if we are not in the practical application of applying those scientific principles to today's world, we will not have to be discriminated against because we just not going to be in the mix. Mm. We have to understand right now that they are planning space hotels. We have to realize that they are thinking about developing space elevators that can take you into various parts of space. Just like we go into an elevator in a building, they're doing the same thing, taking you into space. They're thinking about people having their anniversaries and their celebrations on asteroids or planets on the moon. Mm. This is where they see themselves 100 years from now. And if black folk are still in survival mode, you ain't even thinking about that. Right. <laughs> and if you ain't thinking about that, you cannot actualize that. And so what I am suggesting to us as a people is, yeah, culture has its place. Solar power is the future wealth of the planet. Can so, I share my screen with you? Yeah, let's do that. Let me let me get you set up. Go ahead, uh, share, and I'll... I'll um... Make sure it's there. All right. You're all set up and ready to go. 
Okay. So basically what I'm saying, bruh, is that there will be no aliens to describe Africa's wealth and prosperity in the future. No aliens, no millions, no billions, no trillions. When you're dealing with solar power, you're dealing with an ever non-exhaustive power of energy that will bring you a wealth beyond what your wildest imaginations can create is not even dealing with material wealth anymore. It's a whole nother type of wealth that you will be able to access. Solar power is the wealth of the future. Where the sun shines, now here's where Africa comes in. Where the sun shines the brightest, the people are the most melanated and the environment is the most diverse. Mm -hmm. Meaning plant, botany, flaw, uh, for every animal that exists on the planet, you can find in Africa. And there are animals in Africa you can find no other place on the planet. Okay. Africa, it, that's where dogs came from. That's where cats came from. Then you have gorillas that you cannot find any other place in the world, but in the Virunga Mountains of Central Africa. Okay. Now, here's what we talked about with Dr. Michu Kaku, four types of civilization. The first type of civilization is, what, is when you depend on the energy of the earth, the water, the oil, the wind, the gas, fracking, things like that. Mm -hmm. That's where you derive your power. Water power, wind power. But then you start to use these energies thinking of the future. You see, this is what Con Ed does. Con Ed got money on this level, so they don't want to take you to the sun. Mm, mm. When you get to the sun, it's free. <laughs> and then they can't con you. <laughs> Ed can't con you. <laughs> but when you develop out of the earth energy, you then create energy from the sun and the energy from the sun depends on light heat and sound energy that emanates from the sun through the rays of the sun that come down to earth and empower it now at some point in time you begin to use the access of your sun your sun's energy to be able to acquire your own sun in the galaxy. Mm. So the third level of civilization is galactic energy. And that depends on the millions, if not billions of stars of the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy. But imagine if, the, if one sun could give that type of energy to billions of people on the earth, what happens when billions of people on the earth have their own sun that they can derive their own energy from? Mm. Imagine your potential. Then, when you get galactic energy, then you can then tap into cosmic energy. A civilization is only as successful as the source of their energy. Okay. And right now, we're about ready to get up off this earth because the earth is saying to us, 
stop taking my oil, it's my blood system. Stop taking my water, it is my hormones. Stop messing with the wind because that's my breath. Mm. Leave me the hell alone. The earth is telling us, stop abusing me. Mm. But there's a part, part of us that ain't going to do that because we're going to make money. <laughs> but what I am saying to us as a people, we have to teach our children solar power. Okay. That is my cornerstone because it is obvious by the pyramids and by the temples that our ancestors had already got up off the earth and was beginning to develop sophisticated technology that was able to draw on the sun. The reason why the pyramids were built alone, it's obvious that they were able to derive the power of the sun. The pyramids, the mirror, we call them Meru, mirror is what we call pyramids. They are as deep as they are tall. The pyramid is 481.4 feet tall. They're about 300 and something feet deep. Mm. And there is a book called the Giza Power Plant. They believe that was a nuclear power plant. A nuclear power plant. Yes, it's called the Giza Power Plant. There's a book titled the Giza Power Plant. In fact, a friend of mine who was a friend of Malcolm was into micro technology. He, we invited him to our um, school to speak to our teachers about Malcolm and about his experience. Earl, Earl um, was the brother that was in the movie at the end that Malcolm hugged. He sort of kind of got on his case and then he hugged him at the end. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the brother I'm talking about. Okay. I went out to Los Angeles. I heard the brother was in the hospital, went to visit him. He has since joined the ancestors, but I went to visit him and he, and you know, we were talking, he said, here's the word for the future. And I'm, and I'm gonna give it to y'all and brother Hotep Jesus. I know you're going to like this. Here's, here's the word for the day. Hold on. Can you stop the screen share? I want people to see your face as you're telling this story. Okay, go ahead. Okay. You can see me now. Yep. Okay. The, uh, he said, here's the word, here's the future, plasma physics. Mm. Plasma, he said, Google it, get books on it. Because he knew I was into science because he used to come to my class when I taught in Queens and he would sit, he said, man, what I like about you is that the culture is there, but you're definitely into science. And he was into micro, uh, uh, micro technology. And uh, he and, and, and he was explaining to me plasma physics is very important. But he was the one that showed me what the pyramid looked like underground. Right. The pyramids are deep. They were building the pyramids years before they started building it from the ground up. Mm. And the, the way in which the brother um, explained it to me, um, Earl Grant is his name. What he was telling me is that it was created like it was a, 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 a microwave technology. Okay. And so what, what becomes interesting is this science. So when we're talking about earth energy, our ancestors had 
stop using the earth for their power. They stopped using water power. They stopped using wind power. They didn't, weren't too much into oil. That wasn't one of their technologies. They, there was nothing that they had that they needed oil for, but water drove them uh, from the energy uh, that they used in, in, in terms of powering various concepts of heat and, and light and, and coolness. Uh, they used wind. That's who brought uh, uh, you know the wind turbines into uh, Europe. The Moors brought those in. Uh, and so they were aware of water and wind power. Didn't use too much gas because they didn't have a civilization that needed that. Okay. They didn't have cars, so they didn't need oil or petroleum and things like that. But the idea was is that it was obvious that our ancestors were very much aware of, of solar power. And so what, what they basically wanted to do was to begin this concept of being able to go from the sun to the galactic energy. Now, there is evidence that our ancestors were aware of galactic energy. When you go to King Tut, when you go to the 18th dynasty, you begin to look at the scientists and they're beginning to carve images, friezes, they, they call friezes, F-R-I-E-Z-E-S, friezes, along the sides of the uh, coffins and the sarcophagi. And they're, they're, they're talking about various types of star power and they're relating star power to human beings in mummified form, which as you're beginning to interpret the pictographs, they have a lot to do with the galaxies. The fourth type of energy is when you can derive it on the trillions of stars of the cosmos. Now, see family, we have a very limited use of energy right now. Okay. So it's kind of difficult for us to understand, well, why you need all this energy? But the only reason why you might say that is because you don't know the power of what you can do. See, because there, there, there come a time that if you have enough energy that you know how to derive your energy, you don't need a spaceship <laughs> to travel. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm going to leave it there, though, brother. I'm not going to get too deep in there. But see, we don't know energy. You know, it's it's like, okay, you know, 200 years ago, if we were all to go back, let's say we go back to um, a city in, in the colonies 200 years ago, and let's say we're walking down the street and a man dropped down dead on the street. Okay. And let's say that we come from this time but we're living back then. And what we do is when we see the man, we take the defibrillator, put it on his chest, boom, bring him back to life again. Right. They burn you at the stake for that. Right. Because they say you're a devil. But in this generation, that's nothing but science. Right. We, we carry, you know, we carry them with us. Right. We have them with us. If somebody was choking, and, and we took them and let's say we did the Heimlich maneuver and they came back. They burned you at the stake 200 years ago for that. Mm. That's bad. You brought the man back from the dead. <laughs> but let's say that we took the defibrillator, put it on the street 200 years ago and just stepped back and somebody died of a heart attack. They wouldn't know what to do with that. Right. Because they had not been to that level of understanding and education that that can be used 
to bring somebody back from life if they have a heart attack. And that's what energy is. We sitting here with the potential of being able to use energy. We have this potential right now, by the way. Mm. We have this potential. Mm. But like that person 200 years ago, if you haven't been exposed to something, how are you going to know how to use it? Right. Once you understand what energy is cosmically, you can do things that would seem to be miracles, but it ain't nothing but the real thing. It's nothing but the potential that we have as a people. And I mean, that's just the way it is. Really? Are we as a people preparing our children for their future? Really? Check this out. In this book, I quote Dr. Kaku. He says, the International Solar Energy Society is proposing sending up satellites the size of a modern city to beam power down to the Earth. Remember Captain Sisko in Deep Space Nine? Mm. Each satellite would be huge, about a mile across, and cost about a billion dollars, roughly the cost of a nuclear plant. This is the future, family. <laughs> is this where our mind is right now, or are we still trying to survive? <laughs> a solar power station will be launched into space that will generate a billion watts of power. It will be huge, about 1.5 square miles in area, covered with solar cells. energy from the sky. By the end of this century, another possibility opens up for energy production, energy from space. This is called space solar power, SSP, and involves sending hundreds of space satellites into orbit around the Earth, absorbing radiation from the sun, and then beaming this energy down to Earth in the form of microwave radiation. The satellites would be based 22,999 miles above the Earth, where they become geostationary, revolving around the Earth as fast as the Earth spins, because there is eight times more sunlight in space than on the surface of the Earth. I'm just asking us to think now. I'm just asking us to think, where are we in our lives as it relates to understanding this type of science for our children. But I can't leave it like that. Now I got to leave you with children's books that were that that are that were book, children's books regarding solar power and energy. Just so, I just want to give you a couple beginnings. Yeah. Because the bottom line, and this might be good for us too as adults, because some of us might not know this either. Right. <laughs> they didn't teach us this in kindergarten and first. My, te my children learned this. Okay. We, we were creating solar batteries and photovoltaic batteries in our classroom. <laughs> we used to make things run by lemon, uh, grapefruit, or orange. We used to have races to see which one would go faster. Is it a lemon? Is it a grapefruit? Or is it an orange because of the citric acid in these uh, different fruits? Right. The sun. It's a simple book all about solar flares, eclipses, sunspots, and more. Basic book on the sun. Should be for our children. You should read it too. Tales of Invention, Solar Power. Pretty good book too. Small book. 
Chris Oxlade and then harness it, invent new ways to harness energy and nature. Now, the last piece. There is a series of books. It's a graphic library series, Graphic Science with Max Axiom, Super Scientist. Comes from Capstone Press in Minnesota. Max Axiom is an African-American um, superhero. He's a super scientist. And they came out with a series of books. I think there's 29 in. I ordered the whole series. But the ones that deal with what we're talking about here in terms of solar power, first and foremost, you have to understand the scientific method. The scientific method in Kemet, in Kush, was called Tep Heseb. It means coming to an accurate conclusion by using the correct method. That's the scientific method. Mm. You create the question. You begin uh, to gather your uh, information. You present your hypothesis. You create an experiment that will that 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 will practice what it is that you hypothesized. You will. Uh, um, um, the fifth step is that you will analyze, organize your data, and the final step is present your conclusion. That's the scientific method. Right. Right out of Africa. A, the next book is a refreshing look at renewable energy. We have to start looking at renewable energy. We cannot keep using plastic. I know it's good to suck on a plastic straw, but what happened to that plastic after you throw it on the beach? Mm. And then you wonder, you know, I, you know, the school I taught in in the Bronx on Webster Avenue, it's not close to, but it's in the same borough as um, Orchard Beach. And then, there was a McDonald's across the street. And when I used to get that cracked Donald coffee, I, I used to be going and they had a parking lot, right? And one day I was crossing going to McDonald's and all of a sudden something hit me in my head and fell on the floor. It was a chicken bone. <laughs> and I looked up, it was a seagull. This is when cracked Donald had chicken with bone. Mm. And I, why is that seagull eating chicken? We're turning birds into cannibals. Mm. They're eating chicken. Seagulls ain't supposed to be eating other chickens. Mm. They're not cannibals, but we're forcing them because we are poisoning the beaches and the water that they were used to getting what they ate from. We have to stop. We have to start looking at renewable energy. And for God's sake, please use the garbage can on the corner. Don't throw your rubber gloves on the ground. Mm. Renewable energy. What is recyclable? What is renewable? Another book, The Powerful World of Energy. Another book, The Illuminating World of Light. The Attractive Story of Magnetism, The Shocking World of Electricity, and A Crash Course in Forces and motion. Now, I'm going to stop sharing because that was my last slide. I'm pretty sure that was my last slide. Yeah. Okay. Now, as we round this out, here are some of the books. Here, for instance, here is the book on uh, uh, forces and motion. This is not one of the ones I listed, but this is one of the ones that's in the collection of books of Max Axiom. And by the way, here's Max Axiom right here. Can you see him? Mm -hmm. Brother, look like Cisco. 
is exploring ecosystems. See, it's a thin book. It's a children's book. Adventures in Sound. It's Max Axiom. All of these are super scientists. Here's chemical reactions. Family, we got to teach our children science. Where you get these books from? I will. I, will, I need this for my kid. Oh, oh man, I'm gonna tell you. You know, in fact, I'm. You know, I'm gonna send you this PDF. I'm. I'm. I'm gonna send you these six in PDF form, brother. Okay. And then here's another one called "The Incredible Work of Engineers." And here's. And so, just to show you what the inside might look like, this is what it looks like. And basically, it tells a a phenomenal story. This is a brother, a superhero, Max Axiom, super scientist. His special powers is the fact that he's brilliant. And then here's a, a piece where they always give you a little bit more about the subject you're studying, more about engineering. Okay, let me, uh, okay, since you asked that question, I'm going to share my screen again. Okay. And then, and, and, and then I'll show you. Um, there it is. Graphic Library Series, Graphic Science with Max Axiom, Super Scientist. Uh, Google Capstone Press, Minnesota. Mm, okay. There's about 29 books in this series. And, I mean, it's really nice stories, well-blended, and it teaches a lot about science. But I didn't show you the ones on solar power. Um, I just wanted to show you examples of this. But these are the books in terms of solar power that you would use so if you didn't want to buy the whole series, you could always just buy the ones that you felt you wanted as it relates to uh, solar power and uh, energy. I got you. But it's, cap it's, it's graphic library series, graphic science. That's how you Google it as you go on. You go to Capstone Press, then you go to graphic library series, graphic science with Max Axiom, super scientist. And then this series should come down to you. Mm. I dedicate this to the children because this is for the children. And if we bought these books and if we taught them about the sun, and it's not just these books, you can go out and get other books wherever you may go. You can go to Amazon. You can go to an African-American owned bookstore and ask them to order the book for you so you can do black business. Right. But the idea family is culture has its place, but our people were cultural, but they were brilliant and they were scientists and we got to get like them. What good is knowing Imhotep just to applaud what he accomplished? I want to build like he built. I want to be the engineer that he was. I want our children to be the poet that he was, to be the diplomat that he was, to be the prime minister. That's what I want because anything else is dead history. It's just a matter of applauding people that did something, but it ain't doing nothing for you. We got to make this history come alive. Dedicated to the children. Mm. They are our future and they want this family. I've been with them long enough to know they are hungry for this. Mm -hmm. They want to know this, mm -hmm. but they want to know it in a way that it makes sense to them. Don't half step with children because children, if you want to know about yourself, Hang around with a five-year-old. I spent years with four and five-year-olds in kindergarten. They probably are my greatest teachers mm. about myself. They taught me more about myself because I used to go home sometime. I say, damn, did I really think like that? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm ashamed of myself sometimes because <laughs> children picked it up because they're too pure to lie to you. Yeah. They, you know, you know, they're too pure They, you know, they're not going to lie. They don't mean to hurt your feelings, but they, they going to tell it to you like they see it. as they get older, they begin to learn how to be diplomatic. Right. But when they five, boy, they're going to hit you like a brick. <laughs> You know, when I'm talking to you, Hotep Jesus, I'm just thinking of occasions I had in the lunchroom or in passing children in the hallway or things that they would say, things that they were talking about. You see, that that was my blessing. That is what I have blessed, blessed myself with, my memories of being with our children in South Central Bronx for 31 years. Man, them some beautiful people. Uh, are, there, are there any specific stories? that come to mind in regards to like Kanye says, listen to the kids. Yeah. Are there any specific stories that come to mind? Oh man, listen, there was a time, you know, okay. I'm teaching eighth grade. Um, this is later in my career when I started teaching middle school, I'm teaching eighth grade, man. And I'm teaching social studies this year. And I was teaching about the American revolution. And I remember, cause I was talking about George Washington. And one of the students said, yo, Brother Kaba, this is boring. Hmm. I said, yeah, this is boring? He said, yeah, brother, this is boring, man. I, I, I can't help. And then some of the other students chimed in and said, yeah, this is, this is really boring. I said, this is really boring? Yeah, this is boring, brother. I said, really, really, really boring? They said, Brother Kaba, you could say it 20 times boring, and it's boring. <laughs> And I say, okay, multiply that by 20. And that's how bored I am teaching you this. <laughs> I said, but this is a game. And you have to learn how to play a game. Do you play basketball using baseball rules? No. Do you play any sport playing another? No. I say, well, school has rules. And this is a game. Give me 20 minutes to tell you what you need to know to pass my test I got to give you on Friday. And I'll spend the other 20 minutes telling you what you need to really know about George Washington. And let's start with the fact that he ain't never chopped down no cherry tree and he was not an honorable man. Uh-oh. <laughs> the whole class got quiet and said, well, I guess we go tune in the brother carbon now and what i would do is i would have them copy down the introductory chap uh the introductory paragraph and the conclusion paragraph and i would build my test around those upon which they all passed because i told them what the questions were i did the same thing with them that i did in college because i want you to know something this is what i want you to know i'm not playing with you. When my college students left me, they knew 75 things. Because they never had to worry about all that other garbage they thought I might ask them. Mm. I never played with my students. And I still don't play with the students or our community. I don't play with you. And by that, I mean, mess with you, try to be cute, try to say this or try to do that. No, I'm gonna drop it exactly the way I believe for me, you should be interpreting what I'm saying. I want you to know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to take things around the corner. I just want you to understand. And with my children, they say, 
This is boring. I say, guess what? I'm bored teaching it to you. And that's the truth. There's another one. There was, there was another situation. Oh, man, I got stories, brother. You start me I, on stories. I got stories. I love them. I love them. Oh, oh, brother, there was this brother, again, going back when I was in middle school towards the end of my career. This brother had one foot on the block and one foot in Rikers Island. Okay. This brother was ready to go to Rikers. And I used to teach at Rikers. I, I taught at the high school, and I used to visit the adult uh, centers. And I also visit, visited the Rose Singer Wing, which is where the sisters were. I used to visit them and talk to them. And the, the brother used to say, yo, Brother Kaba, tell us a story about Rikers. And what I would do is I would start telling them a story. You know, I would tell them a story about this brother that they asked me if I would help coordinate a right to pass program in Rikers Island for the high schoolers. Because you know they got a high school in Rikers Island. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, they have a high school there. And the only difference between a high school in Rikers and a high and a high school in New York is that instead of having correction offices in the hallways, you have school aides in the high school. Right. Because you even got some bars up at the window. <laughs> in the yeah, yeah. They design the same way. Yeah. Is that design is exactly the same way. You got the metal detectors going in. Uh, you've got police roaming the hallways. It's the same exact thing. And you see, the thing was, is when I would go from Rikers to my regular school, which was not high school at the time, it was uh, middle school or it was elementary school. Like I would say, damn, nothing's changed. Except instead of correction officers in the hallway, we have school aides. The same thing. So, so I told him a story about this brother. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because... Uh, brother said he want to sing a song for the Right to Pass program. And I was sitting there. I said, okay, okay, let's practice. What does Right to Pass mean? Well, Right to Pass is another way I say Right of Passage. I don't okay. call it a Right of Passage program because there were multiple Rights to Pass programs in the African community. The reason why we focus on the 12 to 13, the puberty one, is because of bar mitzvah and because of what European culture has given us as a turning point in a young person's life. But the moment the child is born, there was a right to pass program. At the age of two to three, there was a right to pass program. Seven to nine, there was a right to pass program. 12 to 13, there was a right to pass program. 19 to 19 and a half, there was a right to pass program. 65 there was a right to pass program. Right to pass means that you have a that you have gotten to a spiritual place in your life, that you are now ready to move on into the next level. This is where masonry is born out of. This is where, and then out of masonry came fraternities and sororities that broke up the apprenticeship from the son of light level of the masonry. And so I call it right to pass, which means that you have a right to pass to the next level. It's not just it ends right of passage, that's it. No, there's many of them that you're going to have to experience. They don't judge you by your intellectual growth like we have graduations. They judge you by your spiritual growth. Okay. They, they, they didn't have education graduations. They had spiritual graduations. Mm. And that's why they're called commencements. Because because I always tried to figure out why do they call them commencement when I'm graduating? I'm ending something, but commencement means to begin. Right. 
The reason why it's commencement is because in Africa, you begin to be the person you were studying to be. Uh -huh. And you're now moving on to the next level that you're going to have another passage when you get to that level. And that's how it was. Okay, so this brother, not going to mention his name because he might, he, I pray he's still alive. Uh, but he sang the song. And man, I say, oh my goodness, this guy don't sound like the person that sang that song. <laughs> and I said, I'm afraid to let this brother sing this song. Now, the reason why I say this is because I haven't been able to do this for a number of years now because the song is I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly. Right. And because of the situation that R. Kelly finds himself in, it is very difficult for me to use that song because everybody break off and start thinking about R. Kelly the man as opposed to the words of the song. But when you listen to those words of the song, this is what it did. I'm sitting in the chapel in Rikers Island. I am sitting within a spiritual prison in a physical prison. And I'm listening to the words of, I believe I can fly. And, uh, and it is accentuated by the fact that this brother does not sound like R. Kelly. <laughs> this brother sounds like he in pain. Okay. But for the first time in my life, I heard those words from that, that perspective. And it transported me back onto a plantation in 1725. Wow. And I began to hear those words from that perspective. As an African, Africans on a plantation going through that pain. So another homework. I'm, I'm a teacher, Hotep Jesus, yeah. and to all those watching. So I, so I got to give you homework. Okay. If you can, go beyond R. Kelly. Just listen to those words. I love that song. That's a oh, space jam, okay? Mm -hmm. Listen to the words of that song. Transport yourself back onto a plantation. And think of yourself. And this is how I just going to round this out. When I heard those words and I transported myself back onto a plantation, hearing another brother maybe in the field singing that song or a sister singing that song, for the first time, those words made sense to me. Because actually what I came to realize was as, as that brother was singing that, see, if I had heard it from someone that sounded you know, like R. Kelly or Luther Vandross or somebody, it wouldn't have hit me the way it hit me. Right. It hit me specifically because it sounded so sad, mm. out of tune, but with an effort and a pain. And when I heard those words, I heard our ancestors talking to us. And when they are talking about, I believe I can fly, if you just open up the door, when I heard those words, I began to realize our ancestors, their dreams are us. Mm. We are their dreams. Mm. We are their aspirations. When they said they believed they could fly, we are the entities that flew. We are them. And I just thought that it was such a powerful uh, situation. Hey, uh, tell me, brother, would it be testing the waters if I were to 
play I Believe I Can Fly? Um, yes. Okay. Because of the DMCA, right? YouTube is going to flag oh, it. I, okay, good. I'm glad we, I asked you. Yeah, we can pull up the lyrics. Uh, because, you know, um, it, it, it was very, I'm glad I asked you that ahead of time. Yeah. But, you know, the idea is, uh, you know, you, you, and, you know, going back to the children, <laughs> when I told them this story, I actually came back at a later time and I played the words to the song. I played the song for them to hear. And, and I was looking at that brother that asked that one, that, you know, the brother that had one foot on the, on, on the block and the other block, other foot in Rikers. I was looking at him and I saw the change in his face. I saw that I had made some form of an impact. I'm not going to say that he was <laughs> transformed. Yeah. Well, he still had work to do. He was in the he was in the process of transformation. Right. But that made an impact on him when he started listening to those words. Because our ancestors, you know, at the end when he's talking about the wind beneath their wings, man, our ancestors are the wind beneath our wings. They are the ones that keep us flying and floating, and they keep reminding us. An another thing I want to tell you is that the one thing I used to say to the children, this is on a spiritual level. I, I never told them it was spiritual, but this was real spiritual to me. When they would be acting inappropriate, I, I would say, uh, listen, Jamal, for instance, Jamal, you know better than that. You know better than that. And the look on their face because I wasn't talking to the young brother or the young sister. I was talking to the ancestors within them. You know better. Why are you letting him act like this? You know better. Grab a hold of him. Make him right. Have him sit down, do the right thing. Stop throwing things and hitting people upside the head. You know better. That was very spiritual to me. Mm. Here's another story. Oh, man, I got stories, brother. Keep them coming. Oh, man. Um, I was coming into a school and there were people who were trying to undermine me. They were trying to sabotage me. And so I used to visit classrooms when, when I was an administrator. I used to visit classrooms. And um, this one school I, I, I came in, what they decided to do was to give me an extremely challenged class that had been purposefully underdeveloped in the special ed program. Mm. They say, okay, you think culture work? You got a big mouth? Okay, let's see. Let's see if you can do this. They never told me this now, so I don't notice. I noticed afterwards because someone told me. But they put me in this room. There was about eight brothers, all of them brothers. And when I walked in, okay, a lot of disruption, a lot of situations. So, you know, I started talking to them telling them stories, things like, you know, regular things, where I was from, what I was about, how many children I had, you know, things like that. How old are you? <laughs> they want to know my age. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, this one young brother had his head on the desk and he had his hood on and he had his head on the desk. And he was laughing the whole time I was talking. And he's still, still with his head on his desk. He raised his hand. And I called on him. I said, okay, the brother with the head on the desk with the hand up. Because <laughs> I didn't know his name. But you... He said, 
why you got such long hair? Because you know, I, you know, I had a ponytail. He said, "Why you got such long hair?" I said, "Well, it's it's, it's my culture. You know, it's it's something I don't believe in shortening the lock. I don't believe in cutting hair." I I I say, you know, radio, and you know, radio has an antenna, and what you want when you want better reception, you pull the antenna up, and you get better reception. I said, "Well, that's what hair is." I said, "You ever heard of Samson and Samson's locks?" I said, "Well, that's where that story come from, Africa." that the locks are like antennas, divine antennas, to receive information. He said, they ever talk to you through that? I said, yeah, I've had some conversations. <laughs> and he's laughing. He thinks this is funny. He's laughing, thinking this is a big joke. And so he puts his hand down. Okay, no more. And so I, so I keep talking to the brothers. And see, not, see, he's helping me get the other brothers in, in place now because if, if I can get him, I can get all of them. So, you know, I just keep talking. He, he puts his hand up again. I said, okay, the brother with his head down with his hand up again. What you got, man? He said, why you wear earrings? And you got two on each ear. I said, well, because the circle is the circle of life and it creates a relationship between the people. Like for instance, I'm right here, right? And I say, look at me, here I am and there you are. But the problem is you got your head on the desk. So it's not like it's a circle. And so the brother raises, this is the first time I'm looking at his face. He sits up and I say, hey, look at that. Hey, man, I say, you a handsome brother. I know all the girls outside love you, don't they? He, he's, <laughs> he thinks it's funny. Okay. So he's just watching me now. He's, he's up now. He's not, he doesn't have his head on his desk again. He's up there looking. And pretty soon he raises his hand again, but he asks a question in relationship to what I'm talking about. And I answer him. Here's the long story, okay? Because that was like about a 40 minute. L let me tell you, the European American teachers that thought they were gonna sabotage me, they were shocked. Mm. They were shocked at what happened in that classroom. What happened? I got the class under control. They thought they was gonna dance all over me. Right. They wanted to make me look like a fool. They brought me into the lion's den. Eight brothers, two of them was taller than me. All those European teachers were scared of these brothers. I walked in with a, yo, yo what's up? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it wasn't no tough attitude because I'm not that type of person. It, you know, it ain't about, it, you know, it's not about being tough. It's not about getting, I came in wanting to talk with an, you know, with a, a, a attitude that any young brother that, see, the hardest heart is the hardest hurt. And I've always operated like that. And in math, you cancel out like terms. Hardest hard equals the hardest hurt. When you cancel out like terms, hard equals hurt. Why am I going to come on a young brother on the side that's hard? I'd rather come up underneath and deal with the hurt to eradicate the hard heart. Because that's what the young brothers want. The harder they are, the more hurt they are. Why am I going to make you more hurt? Why am I going to become another factor in your life that's going to hurt you to make you feel like you can't accomplish? I ain't come in this room for that. And I used to tell the brothers that. I say, you know something, bro? Because some of these brothers would Emma Effa and all sorts of stuff on me. You know, I mean, that's how, how they do it. Pissed off. I say, you know, bro, when I got up this morning, man, I was looking forward to seeing you. <laughs> 
I said, you know, as you, you know, as well as I have never spoken to you the way you just spoke to me. I have never said that to you. I have never even imagined talking to a good brother like you like that. And pretty soon that heart goes away, man. See, we as men sometimes get very offended with young brothers who are trying to be their man because in this world, young black men have to act like adult black men to survive. But I know they're a child because I was once a 13-year-old like you. I, I know what it is. I'm not going to hurt you, brother. Right. So, because you feel like this, you know, why don't you go that way and I go this way? And when we can talk to each other, when we feel better, because you know, I ain't the one that made you feel like this. I, I, I came on you and you was like this. So let's just ease up for a while so we can be able to talk to each other at, at a later date so that we don't have to go through this with each other. I say, cause man, like I enjoy your company. I, you know, I didn't come. And, and so this is the way in which I would react to the class. Now, let me go back to the story I was telling you. Okay. The basic concept of the story, remember you talked about the right to pass? Yeah. At the age of two or three, it's the age of inquiry. Some people call it the terrible twos. I call it the terrific twos because, okay, at two or three years of age, okay, mommy, daddy, I've been following everything you've been telling me to do. You tell me, go over there, I go over there. You tell me, go over there, I go over there. You tell me to do this, do that, blase, blase, blase. Okay, but now I need to ask you a question. Why? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do that? So now when I was with that young brother and he had his head on his desk and he was laughing, he was in a child's form. When he kept asking me questions, I kept answering them. I addressed the spirit of inquiry. The seven and nine is the age of reasoning. When that brother stood up, sat up, and was looking at me and began to ask questions that dealt with what I was saying, he now had grown from a child of two to three to an age of reasoning. So what actually happened in that classroom was I, understanding African spirituality, brought that brother through a transformation to take him up to where he really was, which was like 12 or 13 years of age, which was to have a classroom where we could sit and talk as teacher and student, as facilitator and student. We could have an honest conversation. In that class alone, within 40 minutes, that is what demonstrated how we have to go into these classrooms with our children because many times, what do adults say? Don't ask me why, just do what I say. We, didn't, we did not address the spirit of inquiry. With my children, they asked me, I would answer every question until they couldn't ask me again. Every time I would answer, they say, well, why? I would answer that. Well, why? I would answer that. Well, why? Pretty soon, they just looked at me and said, okay. Spirit of inquiry. You have to address that spirit in children. Yes. Asking you why. And it's not because you, you told me so. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that now. Don't tell me because I told you so I got to do that. Explain to me why. Why is it in my best interest? Why is it in yours? And what's going to happen if I do it? Don't tell me to do it because you tell me to, but that's control, domination, 
and and white fragility. Mm. What do the police say when they're after a brother in the street? If you just did what I told you to do, well, who the hell do you think you are? That I got to do what you say? What you some kind of a, a, a master over me? This is your plantation. You got to explain to me why you want me to do this. Don't, don't, don't be up in my face like that. And that's how young brothers feel. And I've heard some police, oh, they, they say, if they had just done what I told them to do. But why? Who are you? Who do you think you are that you can come into my community and run my life? But you know, a lot of parents act like that towards their children. Right. With, you know, with my children, hey, listen, I explained to them why. If there was something, here's my last story. Okay, here's, a, here's, here's my last story, Hotep Jesus. Okay. I was asked to come to a high school in Queens, New York, to talk to a group of students. They were having a very serious discipline problem in this high school. And I was hired as a consultant to work with the school to find out a way that we could fix things. Okay. So I say, okay, here's how we're going to do it. The first thing is I'm going to talk to the students and then I'm going to talk to the principal. And then I want to bring everybody together in the same room. This is the whole school now. No, no, well, this is a segment of the school that represents people, young people who have had enough of European American and some of other cultures running the school the way they're running the school. I got you. They've had, the students have had enough. We not gonna deal with this. And when it got to that, that's when they call me. And so here I come and I say, but you gotta do it the way I, I'm gonna do it. And the way I'm gonna do it is I wanna talk to the students first. Then I'll talk to the principal and whoever else adults he'd like in the room. And then I want us all to come together to have a conversation. Okay. Here's the key. With it, interesting. Give or take, without exaggeration, about a third of all the discipline problems in the school was because brothers wore their hats in the building. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the hat you have on right now? Yeah. Okay. And some of them, you see, my head kerchief, okay. Some of them had the head kerchief underneath the fitted. Yeah. A third of the disciplinary problem came from, first of all, European men don't understand about brothers. Don't touch me. And never touch my hat. Right. Don't touch my hat. They don't understand that. Because do as I say. I told you to take the hat off. You didn't take it off. I'm going to take it off for you. No, don't touch me. Okay. So I, so I talked to the brothers. This, this is what the brothers were telling me. They say, we are in, we get detention simply because we always have our hat on. They always tell us to take our hat off. I don't want to take my hat off. Okay. I'm done with the brothers and sisters, but in this particular case, the third of the discipline problem. So then I go with the principal and the assistant principal and other people, and I begin to explain concepts about the African tradition. And the first question that I ask the principal is, why can't the young men wear hats? 
And his response was, because men don't wear hats indoors. <laughs> hey, man, come on, man. Okay, that sounds good for 1935. Yeah. But this is like late 90s, uh, 1990s now. I mean, you know. When I went to school, that's what happened to us. Okay. So I know exactly what you're talking about. These are snatch our okay. hats, put them in a box. Yep. That's mm-hmm. right. You put my hat in with Kwame hat? I don't know what he got. He, I don't know he got cooties. Right. And I got to go in that. I don't even want to. You know, they did that to my son one time. And my son said, I'd rather you keep my hat. Because you touched it. Yeah. Don't touch me. Don't touch my hat. See, they don't understand the crown. There's a lot they don't understand about black men's perception of the pineal gland. Even if they may not know what it is, the concept of the crown is very important in the anatomy of the human being, particularly the skull. So that's the next step. So then I bring everybody together. And... I started a conversation where I would lead the adults to explain to the young people why you have the hats off. Because I understand why they say don't wear hats indoors. And one, you know, I think it was one of the teachers said, but look, there is a social custom that if you go for a job interview and you go in with a hat, there's a very good chance you ain't going to get that job. And if we don't somehow give you the social customs of the society, then you might think it's all right just to go into your job with that hat on your head that way. And the moment they see you with that, you already lost the job. You could be the greatest worker that ever came there. You could have so much to offer, but once they see you with that hat on, it says something to them and you're not going to get the job. You, you know, young brother say, but why didn't you tell us that? Hmm. Why, why, why didn't you say it like that? Mm. You were snatching hats off heads. You were telling because we tell you it's a school rule. What, what, what you just said makes sense. Had you just explained it to us? Mm. We have to talk to the children. We have to explain to them the social mores. In my classroom, I used to tell the students all the time, listen, you, you can wear your hat in my class. But the moment you see the principal, you better snatch that bad boy off. <laughs> because if you don't, then I'm going to get in trouble. And so are you. And I said, after the principal leaves, you can put your hat back on. But that's And then I explained to them the rules, the social. When you go for a job, men do not wear hats indoors. It, it, it's just a social custom. I can't tell you that it'll make you think less. I can't tell you it'll make you sick. I can't say anything negative. It's just a social custom. And if you're going to go for a job, you have to do that. I was okay, man. I know I promised you that uh, that was the last story. I have another story. Keep coming. I'm here for you, man. I'm enjoying this. Here we go. I get on. See, because I like Crackdown on coffee. (laughs) Years ago, this is years ago now. Um, I'm online to get coffee and, you know, there were like lines, four lines, maybe three lines that were ordering. And there was a brother that was ahead of me, but on another line. And he told, uh, the sister that was working, they said, um, you know, uh, you're hired. This was like around like 
late winter, uh, late winter, early spring. He said, you know, uh, I'd like to apply for a job here. And um, I was standing online and, uh, you know, because I know what's going on. And then she said, okay, hold here. I'll go back and get the manager. And so, you know, I said to the brother, I said, excuse me, bro. I said, I heard what you said. I said, I don't mean no disrespect. I said, but can I just give you some tips? <laughs> I said, that's a real nice fit you have on your head. That's real nice. I said, but you need to take that off. The brother had come with a white shirt and a tie, but the top was open and the tie was hanging down. It was tucked in, but it was open with the tie down. I said, brother, button the top. No, no, no. Let, let me, let me, I'll, I'll back up. I said, brother, do you really want this job? He said, yeah. He said, I'm going down south in the summer. And I said, I want to raise some money where I have some spending money when I go down south during the summer. I said, okay. And so now I'm going to say, brother, you need to button that top button, pull your tie up. And I said, smile. And he, I said, man, you know something? I said, you're a handsome man. You got a nice smile. I said, one of the most important things that's going to get you this job is that when people look in your face, they feel pleasant. Your smile make people feel pleasant. When that manager come out, smile. And he smiled at me. Now, okay, long story short, I would go back after, like, in end of May. He worked there. He got the job. Okay. And he gave me free coffee too, by the way. So, <laughs> in fact, he gave me free coffee every time I went there. But the, And I always made sure I got on his line. But the point I'm making is that that brother had good intentions. He just didn't know better. Right. If you really want the job, there are certain things you're going to have to do. If you don't want the job, then first of all, you shouldn't be online. But another thing is... You shouldn't be offended if you don't get the job. But I say, if you want the job, there are things that you need to do to present yourself in a way that you will win your job by the nature of the way you wish to present you. So many of our young people don't understand this because daddy not home to talk to them. A lot of the young brothers need that daddy. What I did with that young brother is what I did with my son. Is what I did with young brothers I've come in contact with. I am your father. And... In my kindergarten class, I could write a book. Oh, tap cheese. I could write a book alone on my four and five-year-olds and six-year-olds that when I was in class with them as their teacher, they said to me, you look like my daddy. I wish you were my daddy. Can I call you daddy? Mm. My response was, I am your daddy. I said, I didn't bring you into this world physically, but as long as you're in my presence in Africa, every adult male was called Baba and every adult female was called Mama. It is my responsibility to be your surrogate, your parent when your parent ain't here. This is the African tradition. We all take care of our own. And all these young brothers out here are my sons. And all the young sisters are my daughters. And that's how I feel for them. That's how I interact with them. That is how I talk with them. 
And that is why I so appreciate you, Brother Hotep Jesus, for inviting me. And I am honored to be invited back a second time. I often tell people, you know, being invited to speak one time is good. But when you're invited back, it means you said something that's stuck. <laughs> so, brother, I appreciate this opportunity. I'm so proud of you, Brother Hotep, because I follow you on Instagram. I see the work you're doing. I see the thought-provoking ideas that you're presenting to all of our community. And I just respect and honor you, brother. And I wish you all the very best in everything that you do. Because I know if you think this is something else, brother, the sky is not the limit for you, Hotep Jesus. You can go beyond, brother. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Can I ask you some questions? Sure, brother. I want to talk about the sun and the moon before we depart. Sun and the moon. What is it about the sun that we don't know or is not taught? And what is it about the moon that we don't know and is not taught? Well, I think it could be taught according to who it is, but the single most important thing to, to understand about the sun is that it is the source of everything we are. We are many suns on earth. The same thing that the sun does all day is to fuse the nuclei of hydrogen atoms. And in this fusion, it loses weight. Two hydrogen atoms create one helium. But in the process of creating that helium, it loses weight. The weight that it loses is the becomes the light, heat, and sound energy that comes down to Earth that creates life. The moon has no shine. Only the sun shines. The moon lights. And the light of the moon is the shine of the sun. And to bring all this together and to combine all things, what I say to people frequently, is always keep in mind, you may not always be the sun. So be careful how you treat the moon. Because the moon depends on the sun for its shine. And if I today am the sun, and I shine on you, the moon, I will have sunshine and you will have moonlight. Because tomorrow, you may be the sun. Mm. I may be the moon. And if you shine on my moon, I will have light and you will have shine. So be careful who you refuse to shine on because tomorrow it may be your sun mm. and you may be the moon. <laughs> mm. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> And I wasn't expecting that question, brother. So my response is right ad lib right there, bro. I love that. All right. So the moon is a very interesting object. So let me tell you what I think of the moon and then you can help me out. They say it's hollow. I'm inclined to believe that some extraterrestrial put it there. I believe that it could potentially be a spaceship and we see or I've seen evidence or what I believe to be evidence of structures similar to what we see in Kemet. 
What do you make of all of what I just said? Do you believe that or what do you believe about them? I cannot say that you're not correct because I don't know. So I accept your thoughts. I see the moon is to the earth as the earth was to the sun, as a gaseous ball that throws pieces of itself off. And I look at the moon as being a knob on the earth that was separated, you know, like an orange and you have that little knob on top of the orange. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how the earth looked at one time, but in order to be a perfect sphere, the, 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 the dynamics of nature would make that moon pull away, but always through centrifugal force be attracted to from whence it came. Hmm. And so the moon circles the earth like the earth circles the sun, like the electrons circle the nucleus of an atom. And there is a dynamic formula known as the grand unified theory that says that the planets are to the sun as the electrons is to the atom itself, the nucleus and the proton. That's what I put on the table in terms of my view towards the moon. The moon is of the earth. The, the moon is a substance of the earth. That's why it's wow. still attracted to its orbit. Mm. Just like the earth circles the sun because the earth is part of the sun. And there is that centrifugal centripetal relationship, the, the, the push out, but pull in and the pull in, but push out those two dynamic forces keep everything in smooth operation in a spherical form. So I see just like the earth was thrown off from the gaseous ball that was a gas, a gaseous ball at one time, interstellar space, the coolness of space, cool down this gaseous ball. But in the middle, there is always a core. In the middle of galaxies, there's the black hole. In the middle of the sun, there is the sun's core. In the earth, there is the, and out of that core comes that dynamic relationship of centripetal and centrifugal force that keeps everything in motion. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. So this is my view. But you see, Brother Hotep, Jesus, there's something that we all have to come to view with. We have to stop telling each other we're wrong. Right. And we have to stop, start listening yeah. to other people's perspectives, respect them. It's on the table. That's the beauty of science. That's what I love about science. It's not personal. Yeah. It's business. Put your thoughts on the table. I put my thoughts on the table. Anna puts her thoughts on the table. And then out of this, we search for the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. each of us could be right in a certain way. Right. Right. So I don't put nothing out. Yeah, that's how my brain works. I want all of the facts on the table. If, you know, if this person believes that, I want to hear it. If you believe yeah. that, I want to hear it. Let's put it all on the table so that's I can it. sort through it all, you know? I love I love that. I love that. The earth, that's it. The, the moon is of the earth. That's going to be on my mind for a while now. All right, let's talk. And, and, and see, the other thing is just think of that knob on top of the earth. Okay. 
and the need for the sphericalness of the earth to be round, that knob would automatically by nature be pulled away, but would have to remain in the sphere of from whence it came. Just like, and this is what I used to teach about the planets. It's like a family, mother and father, son, throw pieces of itself off, the children, the children rotate around the family. You know, and that's a natural process. And if any of those planets get out of alignment, the entire system collapses. And that's what happens in so many families. Mm. When a child or when a parent does something they're not supposed to do, it hurts the whole system. We're all interconnected. And what we're experiencing right now is exactly that. No matter what culture you are, there's only one race on the planet, Hotep Jesus, and that is the human race. And because of biological climatology, that race was born, nurtured, sustained, educated, and civilized in Africa. And when Africans got their show together, then they took it on the road and became all the people that we know today. Mm. And our family is out of alignment right now. Because mm. a group of us don't know how to act. Hotep with it, 1999, Super Chat. He said, the magnitude of this conversation cannot be measured. Hotep Jesus is my friend, my brother, a role model, and my mentor, teacher. Seeing the teacher sharpen his iron with the iron of his teacher is a feat most don't see. Mm. Word. Real talk, mm -hmm. bro. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. We're in experiencing, I believe, a full blue moon right now. And it is my belief that there is some sort of effect that the moon has on us in many different ways, especially emotionally, especially with the tides of the earth, et cetera, et cetera. Can you speak to that and ex tell me exactly what's happening and, or maybe why it's happening? The very nature that we know what time it is because of the moon. Yes. Every, every calendrical system is based on a lunar cycle. Yes. No matter how, how many years, like Africans had many different calendars. Uh, they had a great year of 26,000 years. They had the agricultural calendar, which we experienced, 365.65. They had a, a leap year. And when I say leap year, I'm not talking about every four years. I'm talking about the fact that they existed for 1,460 years. And the next year actually was leap year. See, we add a day every four years. Like this year, we're going to add because every so-called presidential election is a leap year. And there's an astronomical reason why they chose leap year to have election day. But that's a whole nother story. The you idea have to tell is, that like, story. <laughs> listen, man, this is, this is us all around. They just took off. You know, the two things that Europeans invented was the Xerox machine and the patent office. Because <laughs> they stole everybody's idea copied it, and then put their name on it. Yeah. So they had a, a year that was 1,460 years, and then the 1,461st year actually was a leap year where they corrected the calendar. Okay. They also had the one that was 365.25, and they had the one where they added the year every four years. 
So the moon has always been impactful, and there is a direct relationship between the moon and the feminine energy of our sisters. Because mm. you speak to sisters, they'll tell you about their life cycle and how the moon's phases impact their phases. Yes. And when there are sometimes where there may be more of a, a purging of the liquids during their life cycle, and then some, it would be less, and it's all according to the moon. But it's also important to realize is that that which the moon is made of is the same thing that we're made of. The only difference is the composition of our molecules. The order of it. Yeah, the only difference between myself and this chair I'm sitting on is the molecules and how they're put together. Right. But we, but we both have the nitrogen, oxygen, you know, carbon and hydrogen atom in us. It's, it's just how they're manipulated. Right. <laughs> few others here or there, you know, sulfur, things like that. But but basically, we're made of the same stuff. So it would only be natural that the moon would have, for some of us, an even more direct impact according to how closely we were aligned with the lunar cycle and understanding who we are within this, this concept. Because there's some people walk the earth, man, they just don't get it. They, they just don't understand. It's not that they don't have the, the potential to. It's that they have never been exposed to being able to understand it. And it goes back to this, Brother Hotep Jesus. You, we, we were born with everything. Check this out. Okay. When, when a woman's grandmother was born, her grandmother was born with her mother's egg. At the same time, that egg of her mother had her egg. Mm. You could go back to the beginning. This is what mitochondrial DNA does. You could go back to the very first beginnings of the feminine hominid. And every woman that exists today existed in that woman millions of years ago. Mm. So here's what I say to you. Each human is born with every bit of information in the cosmic universe that has ever existed, that exists now, and will ever exist. You have it in you. Here's what I say. Turn out all the lights. You see nothing in front of you. Or you walk into a room of darkness. See nothing. You find a light switch. You see the fan, you see the TV, you see the Xerox machine, you see the computer, you see the tables, you see the chairs. My question is, did all those things appear in the room when you turned the light on? <laughs> no. They were always there. Your light just wasn't on. Mm. That's who we are. A teacher's job is to facilitate the learner to know that they already know it. When I taught my five-year-olds, I never taught them like I was giving them something they didn't have before they came to class. I was just making them recognize, oh, I already knew this. You were born with it. Yeah. Deja vu. Deja vu. Okay, you get a situation. Wow, I, I feel like I've been here before doing this. Right. Well, you have. Because you're the one that wrote your book. So it's like you write a book, right? And then you read the book. And then you read a part of the book. You say, wow, 
somehow or other, I, re I, re I, rem I remember this. But of course you do. You wrote the book. <laughs> uh. Uh. All we do from the moment we're born is to fulfill the book we already wrote. You see Bob Marley? You see Bob Marley emancipate yourselves from mental slavery? None but ourselves Tell can free our mind. Okay. Have no fear for atomic energy because none of them can stop the time. How long shall we uh, uh, sit and watch? Uh, 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 how, long shall, how long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Here's the key. Some say it's just a part of it. We have to fulfill the book. Uh. George Floyd was part of the book. Breonna Taylor was part of the book. Emmett Till was part of the book. Booker T. Washington, part of the book. Malcolm X, part of the book. Hotep Jesus, <laughs> part of the book. Yeah. Kaba Hiawatha, part of the book. The book has already been written. All we got to do is read it. Uh. And reading it is life. Uh. Don't be surprised. Yeah. There are yet things to come. Black folk, good old days ain't come. Black folk ain't had good days. How can you have good old days if you ain't had good days? Mm. Our good days are yet to come. And our good old days are way in the future. So fasten your seatbelt. Mm. Mm. Sharpen your eye and tune your ear so you know what you see and understand what you hear. Minute by minute, hour by hour, as you lose your history, you lose your power. So sharpen your eye and tune your ear so you know what you see. Hotep Jesus and understand what you hear. Uh, okay, I got another question. The four pillars from Kaku, that fourth one, I feel like we didn't really get into. What was it again? The cosmic. Cosmic energy. Can you, can you expound on that? Cosmic, and okay, let me put it to you like this. Uh, um, let me see. Um, did you see the movie Lucy? Lucy. Yeah, that's the one where she turns black and disappears at the end. At the end. Do you remember what she uh, re re replied back when Morgan Freeman asked, where are you? Everywhere. That's the answer. Cosmic energy is you are within the essence of everything. You are one with everything. And in the Shabaka stone, it was called the Nun. It was returning to the origins of all things where everything is everywhere, where time, time and space, history and geography collapses into one. It becomes a time-space continuum. In that time-space continuum, you are in existence for all time and you exist everywhere. Now, those individuals that understand what I just said, you don't have to go to college to figure that out. <laughs> That's a simple fact that a brother on the corner of 149th and 3rd Avenue would have said, "Bruh, I feel you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cosmic energy is everywhere. You are made up of energy. That is at the point where you don't need the earth, you don't need the sun, you don't need the galaxy, because you are all and everything. And each of us is that in microcosmic form. It's science 
We're not into the twilight zone right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to play that. I, I, I don't try. I'm talking science. That's why the subtitle of my book was Spirituality is Unseen Science. Science is Seen Spirituality. It's a powerful thing. Our, our, our ancestors, our creator gave us a phenomenal life to live that I'm just tired of these people screwing it up. Mm. Mm. We got things we got to do. Mm. We can't get caught up in all this nonsense. And, and that's what this really is, to tell you the truth. This nonsense. Yeah, the lack of sense. Yes. We have to get this together, brother. It's yeah. just simple like that. Yeah. So I have another question. What is it that we don't know about what our ancestors in Africa as it relates to the cosmic and the cosmos No, knew or knows? I think basically is we don't know that we don't know. Because if we knew, when you know better, you do better. Mm-hmm. But I mean, our I, ancestors were were mapping out the stars and they were creating these calendars. So they knew something. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Is this because if I turn on ancient aliens, they're going to tell me ancient aliens gave them that. Info. Absolutely. If I were them, I would tell you the same thing. OK. Because if you thought anything else, you would realize that you already have it in your DNA. And then I wouldn't be able to control you. So I, so I have to make you think that something that is nothing like you is smarter than you. Because once you figure out you are you, then you're going to figure out this man lying. Hmm. Oh, oh. And it's a trick. And, you know, the most powerful tool in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. It's the most powerful thing they have. Once you know better, <laughs> you know, like we ain't arguing about was Egypt black now. That's over. Right. You know, now there may be other scholars you can go talk to. You go talk to them, but you don't come over here. I don't want to hear that. Because that's we already know that that's uh, that's established with me. Right. So so please don't, you know, just go away. Go away. Go yeah, away. we don't argue over that. Yeah. No, man, we don't have time for this. We don't have time. There's more things that I'd rather talk about than this. And see, we just got to get this in our heads. We have to understand this, man, who we are, Hotep Jesus, and what we've done. And what we as a particular group here in the belly of this beast have to offer the world, because nobody knows this beast better than us. Mm. We done lived in the belly of this beast. We know what's going on. We see what's happening now. Okay, remember, on, on Wednesday, bruh, there's Trump. And here's Biden. <laughs> and it's something that we just got to realize. I ain't looking for no one to save me. Yeah. The only one that will save me is me. Yeah. And if I save me, you save you, and other people save themselves, then guess what? We all saved. Mm -hmm. It starts with us. Mm -hmm. If it is to be, it's up to me. That should be our mantra every morning that we wake up. If it is to be, it's up to me. I used to have my children chant that in school and in my house, my own biological children. If it is to be, it's up to me. When I was growing up as a young man, 
And I would go to my mother with a, a complaint. She would say, Skip, that's my nickname. She'd say, Skip, what's the solution? I said, well, that's why I come talk to you. She said, no, 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 no. She said, look, here's the, you have every right to complain, but you ain't got no right not to have a solution. So whenever you get a, a problem, before you come to me, you figure out what the solution is and we'll talk about it. Okay, see, because Skip is slick now, okay? Because I'm slicker than mommy. So, okay, I figure this out. So I go to my mother with a complaint. She said, what's the solution? And I told her the solution. I'm all cute thinking I got this. She said, now go back and find two other people that agree with your solution. Because <laughs> 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 so, my mother said, you got to have an A plan, a B plan, and a C plan. Years later, I would hear Richard Pryor say something similar to that. Richard Pryor say, black people have to stay three steps ahead of white people because white people are always trying to push black people two back. This way, we're always one ahead. Uh, that's real. That's Richard Pryor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's real. Three, three steps ahead. Three steps ahead. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, 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 I like to pride myself on and stand. Like, with so the thing is, where I used to go wrong was I'd be like, you know, like for example, 2014, I was telling people what you know, like boycott the NFL. I was saying that in 2014, I was, but I was, I failed to deliver the message on time. So now I'm mastering being ahead with delivering the message on time. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I'm inclined to believe that potentially black people might be from another planet. We might actually be the ancient alien. But we ain't of this earth. We not of this earth. No, no, no. Earth is a satellite. Okay. We are starling. We, we are starlings. We are, according to the story, we are bits and pieces of starlight encased, entombed in our bodies of nitrogen. When we were born, we die. Our spirit died. And our spirit was entombed in our body. When we die, our spirit is born again. And we return back from whence we came. We, we are not of any planet. We're just put here in order to survive and to fulfill the creator's desire to know self. And the only way to do that would be to take energy and encase it in matter. Because there's no way that energy knows because energy is pure. Matter can't know spirit because it's not spirit. But if you encase spirit in matter, matter can transform evolutionary and begin to become that physical specimen that once it reaches where the heart's the right size, the brain's the right size, the elbows are the right size, the hands do what they're supposed to do, the feet do what they're supposed to do. Once all that gets together, then it's the job of that matter to begin to involve, to search for the creator within. Mm. We are not of anything. We are of the creator. In fact, it is said that not only are we our ancestors, but we only have one ancestor. And that's the creator. Because mm. all ancestors came from the creator. Mm. And if that be true, if you backtrack your lineage, everybody's in the creator. We are the creator having a human experience. I know people say sacrilege. They say this brother's heretical. 
Because I tell people, you are God having a human experience. Why are you praying out there? Who's out there? <laughs> right. Looking. That's why you keep looking. You ain't going to find him because he ain't out there. You want, in fact, I saw God this morning. I watched God brush his teeth. I watched God, and I, in fact, I helped him wash his face. Mm. You want to see God? Look in the mirror. You don't have to search for God. Everybody talking about in search of God. No, go to the mirror. That's God. Uh. And love that God. Two cosmic commandments. Understand and know that you are the creator having a human experience. And to treat all of the creator's creations as you would treat yourself. So when you treat yourself like a God, you're going to treat everything else and everyone else like a God. And therefore you'll have heaven on earth. my thoughts that's wonderful last piece i want to talk about because you mentioned this earlier when we was on the phone um this afternoon um you said something about there's life forms on like a hundred thousand other planets or something like that well actually i was talking about like when i try to blow people's minds as it relates to science and i i i, I quantify things so that people can understand like I did with the ancestors to think that 400 years ago, that first person 400 years ago that started the process of you becoming was 1,048,576 ancestors made you who you are today, starting with two parents, four grandparents, eight great grandparents. So I, so I, so I try to show people the enormity of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But a lot of time when you, uh, uh, quantify something. People understand it. See, when you get into uh, qualifying it, it's beautiful. It sounds nice and the rest of that, but they don't get the solidness of what you're saying. And so what I was saying, and I, and I was talking to you before that there are systems in not just our galaxy, but there are billions of galaxies. Right. And there are billions and galaxies are contained within clusters. There are billions of clusters. Clusters are part of superclusters. There are billions of superclusters. So this thing we call the universe is huge with many different possibilities. Our Earth and our sun, they say that our sun's large, that you can fit one million of our Earths in the sun. That's what they say. And what I am saying is that in understanding that relationship of one million Earth in our sun, imagine a sun, and they are out there, imagine a star, a sun, that you can fit two billion of our suns in. That's how big this sun is. Mm. Two billion of our suns can fit in this one sun. And rotating around this sun is 480,000 planets, upon which 150,000 of those planets have life. Imagine one of those lives. You see our evolution? We say it, we've been evolving for 4 million years. Imagine on one of those planets, life had 
been evolving for approximately 2.5 million years. Let's say on another planet, there are over a hundred million years of evolution. We are 4 million. Imagine a hundred million. Imagine where their minds might be now. Mm. And let's say they come down to earth. You know what you're guaranteed? They're black. <laughs> I'm talking science. Okay. Because what creates life is carbon. Right. Carbon is the atom that acts as cosmic glue. You have four major atoms. You have hydrogen, you have oxygen, you have nitrogen, and you have carbon. You can put two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen together, H2O, you can make water. You can take two parts hydrogen, two parts oxygen, create hydrogen peroxide. You could do the same thing with nitrogen. But you cannot put no more than four of those atoms together at any time under any circumstances because it won't come together. With the introduction of carbon, that's what creates the billions of molecules that exist in our cosmic reality. And because life, as it did, started black on, on this planet, anywhere where life is has to assimilate carbon, which means they black too. Because Indo-Europeans, European Asians are a mistake. Humans were born to be black. Plants were born to be green. This is science. It ain't personal. Africans depigmented themselves when they got into a climate that was not to their liking that would develop a melanin relationship with the carbon of the cosmic reality. So to, so to survive, they had to depigment themselves. So they went from a brown black to today we call them white or yellow. But they're not supposed to exist. And if Africans had not left Africa, Europeans and Asians would not be on this planet today. That's science. That's not personal. That's oh. not inferiority or superiority. And if you don't believe me, just check out Punet's cube, where you have where you don't talk about inferiority or superiority, you talk about a dominant gene and a recessive gene. Nothing personal. I'm not upset. See, I smile. <laughs> I'm just dropping it. You said Punet's cube? Yeah, Punet. P-U-N-E-T-T. Punet. P or it might be two N's in it. Punet's cube. You have the, the big B and the little B. And the dominant is the capital B, and the recessive is the little B. And in, in your cube with four spots, you put the big B, the little B, the big B, and the little B. The, the most dominant is the big B, big B. But then when you mix a big B with a little B, you then get recessive. But you still have a dominant gene there. You get to the bottom. You have a big B, uh, well, you have a little B and a big B. That's still recessive, but you still have dominance. When you get over to the last, you have the little B and the little B. That's recessive. If that misses, if that mixes with any of the other three, it becomes what the other one is. The African woman can produce any human being that exists on the earth, but no other person outside of Africans can create an African.
science. It's not. So I guess the one drop rule has some scientific back to it or? Not only that, but once you go black, you don't go back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love it. I love it. I love it. You taking me back to my, my old Hotep studies, man. <laughs> okay, okay. That's how you started this conversation. The old Hotep studies, brother, that was a glorious age that brought forward great people and continues to bring forward great people. And even to my beloved people whom I love unconditionally, even if you don't understand how great you are, take it from me. I'm great. Mm -hmm. I still love you. I still respect you. I just don't, I, I just don't have time to talk to you right now because right. I'm talking to the Hotep Jesuses of the world. Blessed. I'm looking for the people that are ready to make this move. I love all of my people unconditionally. I just don't have time for you right now. We have very serious work to do. This is an anointed time right now. Time is precious. Don't waste it. Do what you got to do. What's your passion? When you say when you say you don't, you're not talking to them. Who who are you speaking about? I'm I'm talking about the people that contact me and want this information. I'm I'm talking to the people such as yourself, who invite me to come onto your program to talk to people who are like-minded. And what, who are the people you're not talking to? The people who are bringing me on to argue with me. Mm. I ain't got time for you right now. I love you and I understand the conversation. I ain't got time for it right now. If I had my druthers between that conversation and the conversation with you, I'm going to talk to you. I don't have time anymore. None of us have time. You know, when you get to crunch time and you got to do something, you ain't got time to dilly-dally. Right. You ain't got time to play around. If I have to convince you, ain't nothing I'm going to say will convince you. Right. If I don't have to convince you, then I don't need to say nothing unless you just roll back our sleeves and get the job done. No more time. No more time. Right now, crunch time. Time to save our babies, save our children. Love our people. Brothers, love that sister. She is the source of all life in the cosmic universe. Sisters love that brother. Yeah, okay, so we got our situation. We, we're human, plus we have been purposefully underdeveloped. How you expect me to know how to be a daddy if I was never meant to be a daddy when you dragged my behind here? And if I did act like a daddy, you sold me because I had more power than you on the plantation. We have to learn what we have forgotten. But I see it happening. Little by little, I see a lot of brothers with the strollers now. I see a lot of brothers doing things. And, you know, like I just say to the sisters, you know, we all got to work this thing out. And if we're going to get sessions, because I used to do uh, male-female relationships. And what I would do, you know, is I would, you know, normally I would form it with another sister who was a counselor or a social worker. And like I would take the brothers and she would take the sisters and we would do a situation. And then we would switch. She would come in with the brothers and I would go talk to the sisters. And then we would have collation, eat, lunch, something like that. And then we would come back together all in the room. But here's the key. When we have these open sessions, don't start talking about all the things you can't stand about me. Start with the things you love about me. We can always handle those problems down the road. But let's start in unity. Let's start in the things I appreciate about you. 
And then from there, we can talk about the issues that we must correct. I understand that. I'm not blind to that. But you got to start at a from the point of departure of positivity and then move to those other, because by the time you get to the point where you, you're getting into your corrections, the group trust each other enough and respect each other enough to listen to each other as opposed to battle from the beginning. Mm. The weakest, the weakest part of a nation is its weakest family. Okay. See, I'm not into nation building. Okay. I'm not into empire building. In the truest definition, I'm into building a dynasty. Mm -hmm. Dynasties are built on families. They're not built on individuals. And they definitely ain't built on baby daddies. <laughs> they built on families where people are committed to something larger than themselves. My wife and I have been married 40 years. Congratulations. She deserves every bit of that congratulations. <laughs> we worked together. We, we went through our situations, but there was one thing we knew. We would work it out. Whatever it was, we're going to work this out because, hey, man, my, my greatest memories that I have, this was before our son was born. Some of my greatest memories is when I would come home from work, I would hear my older daughter. She would say, daddy's home. And then our younger daughter, Kondike, would repeat everything bigger sister said, daddy's home. And by the time I got the key in the door and I opened the door, there's these two beautiful African girls looking up in my face. Hey, daddy. What a feeling that was. Mm -hmm. What a feeling that was. And my son later on, he would be trailing right behind them. But, but, but the point that I'm making is the fact that I, I just could not fathom ever leaving those two precious girls in the world to fend for themselves without me there to protect them. Mm -hmm. My wife and I will handle our situations, whatever they may be. It was never anything serious, but it was life. Right. You know, two people learning to live as one, man, that's rough. It is. And so, you know, my thing, you know, was with, with, um, with my wife, we'll handle this, but it, it's not about, I'm not happy. Who the hell cares about your happiness? You're committed to something larger than you. Mm -hmm. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. It's about us. I, me, and my became we, us, and ours. That's the language that an African family speaks. Us, we, ours, not I, me, mine. Commitment. Because if you can walk away from your family, you will walk away from your dynasty, mm. which means I can't trust you. Really? That's some serious shit we got to get. Oh, I'm sorry. That's nah, some serious so we have to get into. <laughs> That's serious conversations that we have to start having. If we're going to build anything about all we, we can talk about economics all we want. We can talk about solar power. We can talk about culture. 
But if we can't repair the male-female relationship, none of that makes a difference. Mm. And that's where we are today. We have work to do. But I'll tell you this. I think we're working towards it. Okay. I believe we're working. Man, I'm very positive about this. The thing is, we have a lot of work we have to do, man. There's a big, there's a big argument happening right now. And black men are being attacked by black feminists, so on and so forth. But the objective mind sees things like you where I'm like, I think that we're having a large conversation. And at the end of this conversation, everybody's gripes are on the table. But I think there's unity after this. But there is a big attack on black men and a division in the black family. Like, you know, Black Lives Matter wants to destroy the family, so on and so forth. Because the powers that be know the strength of the family. But well, we are at that point now where there's a big argument on social media between black men and black women. Yeah, but you know something? Ain't nobody loved a black man more than the black woman. Facts. And nobody loved a black woman more than the black man. We're just going through changes because we have been purposefully underdeveloped. The system has purposefully underdeveloped. That's no excuse, but that is a reason. Mm -hmm. Sisters love their brothers. There is no such thing as a black feminist. They don't exist. Oh, my God. <laughs> they don't exist. They may call themselves that, but they don't exist. Any black woman that vies away from the black man or whomever they may love, anyone that moves away from them, you can call it feminism if you want. But that's not what that is. And I don't care if you're lesbian. Lesbians love men, too. They just may not choose to embrace them as their counterpart, but they have love. They love men, too. Yeah. Just like gay men love women. But you may not love them as your counterpart, but you still love them and respect them. And so this conversation we're having is bullshit. And it's all part of the, the ma'afa, the terroristic disaster that we've been going through. All these years, this ain't nothing but another messed up mental thing. There is no such thing as a black feminist. And there's no such thing as a black masculinist. Those are all terms created by a system that would wish to continue to oppress you. And if they can get those thoughts in your head, and if they can get you to believe it, then we go back to Wade Nobles, who says that power is the ability to define someone's reality and have that person accept that definition as if it were their own. This ain't nothing but an illusion we're experiencing. So if there's no such thing as black feminists, what are they? I have no idea. You have to ask them because they don't even know. <laughs> it's the same brother that would stand up there and cuss out a, a, a black woman. Yeah. These are all terms that we have for each other that come out. That doesn't exist. Any black woman who wants her righteous place knows that she must do it side by side with the black man. And anything else you're going after is an illusion if it doesn't bring you back to that black man. And be you LGBTQ, I'm not even dealing with that. There is still that power of, of Ma'atian balance where, where we all can love each other. And that's what, the, that's what built the pyramids. I, you know, I don't want to, you know, see, this is all the kind of stuff that people get into to confuse the real issue, which is the ascension of African people. This, these are things don't exist. Black, I, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I, I, I don't even think you know what that is. <laughs> I don't. You know, so this is how, this I is think how it's, I, 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 I define black feminism as hurt. 
Well, that, that, that brothers that's cussing out a black woman is hurt too. The hardest heart equals the hardest hurt. Yeah. And the harder you are on what you do, the, 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 the more unshakable or unbreakable or unreasonable you are behind what you do is because that's how much hurt you feel. If right. you ever let up and let people know that you really have a heart because it's been hurt for so long. Yeah. And I ain't got nothing but love for you. So I got nothing but love for people who call themselves black feminists, white feminists, Hispanic feminists, whatever you call yourself. It ain't nothing about breaking away from the very source of your balance and the, uh, the art of what will make you harmonic in life is your counterpart. And to break away from that, to think you don't need that, you must be out your mind. Mm. Well, you are out your mind. Mm -hmm. A lot of people tell me I'm out of my cotton picking mind. <laughs> and I tell them, you're right, I am out of my cotton picking mind. The problem is you in a cotton picking mind. Oof. <laughs> you're in the cotton picking mind. Yeah, yes. you're in the cotton picking mind. Yeah. I'm out of my cotton picking mind. I've escaped from that. Yeah. I'm gone, man. I'm mm. going with Harriet Tubman. <laughs> That's just to turn me on, man. That's just I had a pistol in one hand and a holy book in another. That turned me on, man. Mm -hmm. I'd have followed that sister anywhere she went. I, I would have even gone back south with her just to follow her. Yeah, yeah. Man, bars. <laughs> bars. Yeah, Marquise, bars. Hotep with it for uh, 199 Super Chat. Um, said hashtag stay with it. You already know. Cabo, I think that's where we're going to close the show, man. Sound good to me, brother. I've had a phenomenal time. And again, brother, I'm so proud of the work you're doing. Keep, yeah. keep doing your thing, brother. I'm and, trying. Uh, even if you just want to chop around some ideas, bounce them off the wall, brother, just to get some concepts together, feel free to reach out, brother. I'm with you. Yeah, there's some things I want to talk to you about offline, specifically yeah. related to um, politics and white black relationships in America, as you related on during this broadcast. Yeah. So I'd love to um, interface with you offline and, and show you what I'm seeing and, and you can try to make sense of what I'm seeing and then, you know, uh, we'll walk, we'll walk down the path from there. Sounds good, brother. I look forward to that. And to all the audience that's watching, I send my regards, respect your, my encouragement to know that, um, if our ancestors could do what they did back then, I'm ashamed to think that I'm having a rough day. If they did what they did to bring us where we are, knowing that we would be, remember I told you about, I believe I can fly. If they could do what they did and saw us as their gift, then I believe I can fly too. And I see the future and I see our children and, and our children are going to do the things that we all are hoping for. But we just got to keep on keeping on, just like our ancestors did. One foot in front of the other continuing doing what I had to fight the good fight. Stay in there, do what you got to do, stand for what you believe in, be righteous. Down the road, generations from now, they will look back on us as we look back on them today. And they'll say that that was a mighty people who rose by the will of their wills. Because, mm -hmm. you know, that's the bottom line. 
Marcus Garvey said it, up you mighty race, you will accomplish what you will. We shall overcome by any means necessary. Bob Marley say, uh, no one can curse, Yah has blessed. And the fact that we're still here, we blessed. Mm. Keep on keeping on, brother. Hotep Jesus, all power to the people. Power to the people, Hotep. Hotep. Wow. Y'all, that's my OG. Kabakama name. It's like, this is who I, this is who I look up to, man. This is, that's my idol right there, man. That's my elder. That's my OG, man. When you talk Hotep, like that's who I was studying when I was younger. When I was in my 20s, young 30s, studying John Henry Clark, Dr. Ben, Diop, him, Tony Martin. But Kabu, I always saw him as being like, you know, not to compare him. I'm not comparing him to those names I just mentioned at all. Definitely not comparing him at all. But as far as the people alive today, I got him top tier. Um, just because of his vibe. His vibe is very different. Like my vibe comes off like really hard sometimes. And his vibe is just balance. It's, it's my art. It's Hotep. When people ask me Hotep, I'm like, I represent the idea of Hotep. But it's something that you aspire to be. Like I say I'm Hotep, but I'm not there yet. You know what I mean? Kaba's there. He is Hotep. And I wish I could be that composed sometimes how he is. And I get there. You know what I mean? But I love his vibe. His vibe is very ma'at. It's very balanced. He's got so much wisdom. And um, I love that he's uh, come around and talking science, solar energy, AI. As you guys know, I'm in, involved with AI. Um, and I can't wait to become a billionaire because I'm going to grab him. And we're going to do some amazing things as far as education is concerned, as far as kids are concerned. He's gonna be he's gonna be a great pillar. Him and Shaka. Shaka Akmos is another one of my OGs that I go to for Hotep guidance and interface with. It's just that when I get, you know, I gotta space out my conversation with Shaka. Cause when I speak to Shaka, we on the phone for six hours. So I gotta make sure I got half a day open to have a conversation with Shaka because he just gonna drop some shit on me for six hours straight. But this has been another sharp conversation with Hotep Jesus. In a few days, this will appear on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So make sure y'all subscribe and leave a review. Love y'all. Hotep.